At five o'clock in the morning, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fate, in the guise of Mrs. Emery dropping a milk can on the platform under his open window, awakened Murray that morning. Had not Mrs. Emery dropped that can, he would have slumbered peacefully until his usual hour for rising, a late one, to be admitted, for of all the boarders at Sweetbriar Cottage, Murray was the most irregular in his habits. When a young man, Mrs. Emery was wont to remark sagely and a trifle severely, prowls about that pond half the night, a chasin' of things what he calls moonlight effects, it ain't to be wondered at that he's sleepy in the morning. And it ain't the convenientest thing, nother and no ways, to keep the breakfast-table set till the farm folks are thinking of dinner. But them artist men are not like other people, say what you will, and allowance has to be made for them. And I must say that I likes him real well, and approves of him in every other way. If Murray had slept late that morning, well, he shudders yet over that if, but aforesaid fate saw to it that he woke when the hour of destiny and the milk-can struck, and having awakened he found he could not go to sleep again. It suddenly occurred to him that he had never seen a sunrise on the pond. Doubtless it would be very lovely down there in these dewy meadows at such a primitive hour. He decided to get up and see what the world looked like in the young daylight. He scowled at a letter lying on his dressing-table and thrust it in his pocket that it might be out of sight. He had written it the night before, and the writing of it was going to cost him several things, a prospective million among others. So it is hardly to be wondered at if the sight of it did not reconcile him to the joys of early rising. "'Dear life and heart!' exclaimed Mrs. Emery, pausing in the act of scalding a milk-can when Murray emerged from the side door. "'What on earth is the matter, Mr. Murray?' "'You ain't sick now, surely. "'I told you them pond-fogs was pissin' after night. "'If you've gone and got—' "'Nothing is the matter, dear lady,' interrupted Murray. "'And I haven't gone and got anything, "'except an acute attack of early rising, "'which is not in the least likely to become chronic. "'But at what hour of the night do you get up, "'you wonderful woman? "'Or rather, do you ever go to bed at all? "'Here is the sun only beginning to rise, and— "'Positively, yes. You have all your cows milked.' Mrs. Emery purred with delight. "'Folks as has fourteen cows to milk has to rise betimes,' she answered, with proud humility. "'Laws, I don't complain. I've lots of help with the milking. How Mrs. Palmer manages, I really cannot comprehend. Or rather, how she has managed. I suppose she'll be all right now since her niece came last night. I saw her post into the pond pasture not ten minutes ago.' She'll have to milk all them seven cows herself. But, dear life and heart, here I be palaverin' away and not a bite of breakfast ready for you. I don't want any breakfast until the regular time for it, assured Murray. I'm going down to the pond to see the sunrise. Now don't you go and get caught in the marsh, anxiously called Mrs. Emery, as she never failed to do when she saw him starting for the pond. Nobody had ever got caught in the marsh, but Mrs. Emery lived in a chronic state of fear, lest someone should. And if you once got stuck in that black mud, you'd be sucked right down, and never seen or heard of again till the day of judgment, like Adam Palmer's cow. 
she was wont to warn her boarders. Murray sought his favorite spot for pond-dreaming, a bloomy corner of the pasture that ran down into the blue water, with a dump of leafy maples on the left. He was very glad he had risen early. A miracle was being worked before his very eyes. The world was in a flush and tremor of maiden loveliness, instinct with all the marvelous fleeting charm of girlhood and spring and young morning. Overhead the sky was a vast high-sprung arch of unstained crystal. Down over the sand dunes, where the pond ran out into the sea, was a great arc of primrose smitten through with oral crimsonings. Beneath it the pond waters shimmered with a hundred fairy hues, but just before him they were clear as a flawless mirror. The fields around him glistened with dews, and a little wandering wind, blowing lightly from some bourne in the hills, strayed down over the slopes, bringing with it an unimaginable odor of freshness, and fluttered over the pond, leaving a little patch of dancing silver ripples across the mirror-gray of the water. Birds were singing in the beech-woods over on Orchard Knob Farm, answering to each other from shore to shore, until the very air was tremulous with the elfin music of this wonderful midsummer dawn. "'I will get up at sunrise every morning of my life hereafter,' exclaimed Murray rapturously, not meaning a syllable of it, but devoutly believing he did. Just as the fiery disk of the sun peered over the sand-dunes, Murray heard music that was not of the birds. It was a girl's voice, singing beyond the maples to his left. A clear, sweet voice, blithely trilling out the old-fashioned song, Five O'Clock in the Morning. Mrs. Palmer's niece. Murray sprang to his feet and tiptoed cautiously through the maples. He had heard so much from Mrs. Palmer about her niece that he felt reasonably well acquainted with her. Moreover, Mrs. Palmer had assured him that Molly was a very pretty girl. Now a pretty girl, milking cows at sunrise in the meadows, sounded well. Mrs. Palmer had not overrated her niece's beauty. Murray said so to himself with a little whistle of amazement as he leaned unseen on the pasture fence and looked at the girl who was milking a placid jersey less than ten yards away from him. Murray's artistic instinct responded to the whole scene with a thrill of satisfaction. He could see only her profile, but that was perfect, and the coloring of the oval cheek and the beautiful curve of the chin were something to adore. Her hair, ruffled into lovable little ringlets by the morning wind, was coiled in glistening chestnut masses high on her bare head, and her arms, bare to the elbow, were as white as marble. Presently she began to sing again, and this time Murray joined in. She half rose from her milking-stool, and cast a startled glance at the maples. Then she dropped back again, and began to milk determinedly, but Murray could have sworn that he saw a demure smile hovering about her lips. That, and the revelation of her full face, decided him. He sprang over the fence and sauntered across the intervening space of lush clover-blossoms. "'Good morning,' he said coolly. He had forgotten her other name, and it did not matter. At five o'clock in the morning people who meet in dewy clover fields might disregard the conventionalities. "'Isn't it a rather large contract for you to be milking seven cows all alone? May I help you?' Molly looked up at him over her shoulder. She had glorious gray eyes. Her face was serene and undisturbed. "'Can you milk?' she asked. "'Unlikely as it may seem, I can,' said Murray. 
I have never confessed it to Mrs. Emery, because I was afraid she would inveigle me into milking her fourteen cows. But I don't mind helping you. I learned to milk when I was a shaver on my vacations at a grandfatherly farm. May I have that extra pail? Murray captured a milking stool and rounded up another jersey. Before sitting down, he seemed struck with an idea. My name is Arnold Murray. I board at Sweetbriar Cottage, next farm to Orchard Knob. That makes us near neighbors. I suppose it does, said Molly. Murray mentally decided that her voice was the sweetest he had ever heard. He was glad he had arranged his cow at such an angle that he could study her profile. It was amazing that Mrs. Palmer's knee should have such a profile. It looked as if centuries of fine breeding were responsible for it. "'What a morning!' he said enthusiastically. "'It harks back to the days when earth was young. They must have had just such mornings as this in Eden.' "'Do you always get up so early?' asked Molly, practically. "'Always,' said Murray, without a blush, then. "'But no, that is a fib, and I cannot tell fibs to you. The truth is your tribute. I never get up early. It was fate that roused me and brought me here this morning.' This morning is a miracle. And you? I might suppose you were born of the sunrise, if Mrs. Palmer hadn't told me all about you. What did she tell you about me? asked Molly, changing cows. Murray discovered that she was tall, and that the big blueprint apron shrouded a singularly graceful figure. She said you were the best-looking girl in Bruce County. I have seen very few of the girls in Bruce County, but I know she is right. "'That compliment is not nearly so pretty as the sunrise one,' said Molly reflectively. "'Mrs. Palmer has told me things about you,' she added. "'Curiosity knows no gender,' hinted Murray. "'She said you were good-looking, and lazy, and different from other people.' "'All compliments,' said Murray, in a gratified tone. "'Lazy?' "'Certainly. Laziness is a virtue in these strenuous days.' I was not born with it, but I have painstakingly acquired it, and I am proud of my success. I have time to enjoy life. I think that I like you, said Molly. You have the merit of being able to enter into a situation, he assured her. When the last jersey was milked, they carried the pails down to the spring where the creamers were sunk, and strained the milk into them. Murray washed the pails, and Molly wiped them, and set them in a gleaming row on the shelf under a big maple. "'Thank you,' she said. "'You are not going yet,' said Murray resolutely. "'The time I saved you in milking three cows belongs to me. "'We will spend it in a walk along the pond shore. "'I will show you a path I have discovered under the beeches. "'It's just wide enough for two. "'Come.' "'He took her hand and drew her through the copse into a green lane, "'where the ferns grew thickly on either side "'and the pond waters plashed dreamily below them.' He kept her hand in his as they went down the path, and she did not try to withdraw it. About them was the great, pure silence of the morning, faintly threaded with caressing sounds, croon of birds, gurgle of waters, sow of wind. The spirit of youth and love hovered over them, and they spoke no word. When they finally came out on a little green nook swimming in early sunshine and arched over by maples, with the wide shimmer of the pond before it, and the gold dust of blossoms over the grass, the girl drew a long breath of delight. "'It is a morning left over from Eden, isn't it?' said Murray. "'Yes,' said Molly softly. Murray bent toward her. 
You are Eve, he said. You are the only woman in the world, for me. Adam must have told Eve just what he thought about her the first time he saw her. There were no conventionalities in Eden, and people could not have taken long to make up their minds. We are in Eden just now. One can say what he thinks in Eden without being ridiculous. You are divinely fair, Eve. Your eyes are stars of the morning. Your cheek has the flush it stole from the sunrise. Your lips are redder than the roses of paradise. And I love you, Eve. Molly lowered her eyes, and the long fringe of her lashes lay in a burnished semicircle on her cheek. I think, she said slowly, that it must have been very delightful in Eden. But we are not really there, you know. We are only playing that we are. And it is time for me to go back. I must get the breakfast. That sounds too prosaic for paradise. Murray bent still closer. Before we remember that we are only playing at paradise... Will you kiss me, dear Eve? You are very audacious, said Molly coldly. We are in Eden yet, he urged. That makes all the difference. Well, said Molly, and Murray kissed her. They had passed back over the fern path and were in the pasture before either spoke again. Then Murray said, We have left Eden behind, but we can always return there when we will. And although we were only playing at paradise, I was not playing at love. I meant all I said, Molly. Have you meant it often? asked Molly significantly. I never meant it, or even played at it, before, he answered. I did, at one time, contemplate the possibility of playing at it, but that was long ago, as long ago as last night. I'm glad to the core of my soul that I decided against it before I met you, dear Eve. I have the letter of decision in my coat-pocket this moment. I mean to mail it this afternoon. Curiosity knows no gender, quoted Molly. Then, to satisfy your curiosity, I must bore you with some personal history. My parents died when I was a little chap, and my uncle brought me up. He has been immensely good to me, but he is a bit of a tyrant. Recently he picked out a wife for me, the daughter of an old sweetheart of his. I have never seen her but she has arrived in town on a visit to some relatives there. Uncle Dick wrote to me to return home at once and pay my court to the lady. I protested. He wrote again, a letter, short and the reverse of sweet. If I refused to do my best to win Miss Mannering, he would disown me, never speak to me again. Cut me off with a quarter. Uncle always means what he says. That is one of our family traits, you understand." I spent some miserable, undecided days. It was not the threat of disinheritance that worried me, although when you have been brought up to regard yourself as a prospective millionaire, it is rather difficult to adjust your vision to a pauper focus. But it was the thought of alienating Uncle Dick. I loved the dear, determined old chap like a father. But last night my guardian angel was with me, and I decided to remain my old man. So I wrote to Uncle Dick, respectfully but firmly declining to become a candidate for Miss Mannering's hand. "'But you have never seen her,' said Molly. "'She may be almost charming. "'If she be not fair to me, what care I how fair she be?' quoted Murray. "'And as you say, she may be almost charming, but she is not Eve. "'She is merely one of a million other women, as far as I am concerned. "'Don't let's talk of her.' 
Let's only talk of ourselves. There is nothing else that is half so interesting. And will your uncle really cast you off? asked Molly. Not a doubt of it. What will you do? Work, dear Eve. My carefully acquired laziness must be thrown to the winds, and I shall work. That is the rule outside of Eden. Don't worry. I've painted pictures that have actually been sold. I'll make a living for us somehow. Us? Of course. You are engaged to me. I am not, said Molly indignantly. Molly, Molly, after that kiss, fee, fee. You are very absurd, said Molly. But your absurdity has been amusing. I have... Yes, positively, I have enjoyed your Eden comedy. But now you must not come any further with me. My aunt might not approve. Here is my path to Orchard Knob Farmhouse. There, I presume, is yours to Sweetbriar Cottage. Good morning. I am coming over to see you this afternoon, said Murray coolly. But you needn't be afraid. I will not tell tales out of Eden. I will be a hypocrite and pretend to Mrs. Palmer that we have never met before. But you and I will know and remember. Now, you may go. I reserve to myself the privilege of standing here and watching you out of sight. That afternoon, Murray strolled over to Orchard Knob, going into the kitchen without knocking, as was the habit in that free and easy world. Mrs. Palmer was lying on the lounge with a pungent handkerchief bound about her head, but keeping a vigilant eye on a very pretty, very plump, brown-eyed girl, who was stirring a kettleful of cherry preserve on the range. "'Good afternoon, Mrs. Palmer,' said Murray, wondering where Molly was. "'I'm so sorry to see that you look something like an invalid.' "'I've a raging, ramping headache,' said Mrs. Palmer solemnly. "'I had it all night, and I'm good for nothing. "'Molly, you'd better take them cherries off. "'Mr. Murray, this is my niece, Molly Booth.' "'What?' said Murray explosively. "'Miss Molly Booth,' repeated Mrs. Palmer in a louder tone. Murray regained outward self-control, and bowed to the blushing Molly. "'And what about Eve?' he thought helplessly. "'Who—what was she? Did I dream her? Was she a phantom of delight?' "'No. No, phantoms don't milk cows. She was flesh and blood. No chilly nymph exhaling from the mists of the marsh could have given a kiss like that.' "'Molly has come to stay the rest of the summer with me,' said Mrs. Palmer. I hope to goodness my tribulations with higher girls is over at last. They have made a wreck of me. Murray rapidly reflected. This development, he decided, released him from his promise to tell no tales. I met a young lady down by the pond pasture this morning, he said deliberately. I talked with her for a few minutes. I supposed her to be your niece. Who was she? Oh, that was Miss Mannering, said Mrs. Palmer. What? said Murray again. Mannering, Dora Mannering, said Mrs. Palmer loudly, wondering if Mr. Murray were losing his hearing. She came here last night just to see me. I haven't seen her since she was a child of twelve. I used to be her nurse before I was married. I was that proud to think she thought it worth her while to look me up. And, mind you, this morning, when she found me crippled with headache and not able to do a hand's turn, that girl, Mr. Murray, went and milked seven cows. Only four, murmured Murray, but Mrs. Palmer did not hear him. For me. Couldn't prevent her. She said she had learned to milk for fun one summer when she was in the country, and she did it. And then she got breakfast for the men. 
Molly didn't come till the ten o'clock train. Miss Mannering is as capable as if she'd been riz on a farm. Where is she now? demanded Murray. Oh, she's gone. What? Gone, shouted Mrs. Palmer. Gone. She left on the train Molly come on. Gracious me, has the man gone crazy? He hasn't seemed like himself all this afternoon. Murray bolted madly out of the house and was striding down the lane. Blind fool! Unspeakable idiot that he had been! To take her for Mrs. Palmer's niece, that peerless creature with the calm acceptance of any situation which marked the woman of the world, with the fine appreciation and quickness of repartee that had spoken of generations of culture, to imagine that she could be Molly Booth! He had been blind, besottedly blind, and now he had lost her. She would never forgive him. She had gone without a word or sign. As he reached the last curve of the lane, where it lopped about the apple-trees, a plump figure came flying down the orchard slope. "'Mr. Murray! Mr. Murray!' Molly Booth called breathlessly. "'Will you please come here just a minute?' Murray crossed over to the paling rather grumpily. He did not want to talk with Molly Booth just then. Confound it! What did the girl want? Why was she looking so mysterious? Molly produced a little square gray envelope from some feminine hiding-place and handed it over the paling. She gave me this at the station. Miss Mannering did, she gasped, and asked me to give it to you without letting Aunt Emily Jane see. I couldn't get the chance when you was in, but as soon as you went I slipped out by the porch door and followed you. You went so fast I nearly died trying to head you off. "'You dear little soul,' said Murray, suddenly radiant. "'It's too bad you have had to put yourself so out of breath on my account. But I am immensely obliged to you. The next time your young man wants a trusty private messenger, just refer him to me.' "'Get away with you,' giggled Molly. "'I must hurry back, for Aunt Emily Jane gets wind I'm gone. I hope there's good news in your girl's letter.' My, but didn't you look flat when Aunt said she'd went? Murray beamed at her idiotically. When she had vanished among the trees, he opened his letter. Dear Mr. Murray, it ran, your unblushing audacity of the morning deserves some punishment. I hereby punish you by prompt departure from Orchard Knob. Yet I do not dislike audacity, at some times, in some places, in some people. It is only from a sense of duty that I punish it in this case. And it was really pleasant in Eden. If you do not mail that letter, and you still persist in your very absurd interpretation of the meaning of Eve's kiss, we may meet again in town. Until then I remain, very sincerely yours, Dora Lynn Mannering. Murray kissed the grey letter, and put it tenderly away in his pocket. Then he took his letter to his uncle, and tore it into tiny fragments. Finally, he looked at his watch. "'If I hurry, I can catch the afternoon train to town,' he said. End of At Five O'Clock in the Morning by Lucy Maud Montgomery Read by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Farm 
lives for one horse by Rolf Boldrewood. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Yes, it does seem a goodish price to pay for a half-bred mare worth ten pound at the outside, said old Bill, a cook for the rouseabouts at Jergolo Station, one wet evening, as the men gathered round the fire after supper, with their pipes in their mouths. It had been wet for three days, so there was no shearing. Very little work for the other men either, half a hundred strong, as the wet-fleeced sheep were best left alone. The shearers were sulky, of course. They were eating and paying for their own rations. But the ordinary pound-a-week men, whose board with lodging was provided for them gratis, were philosophically indifferent to the state of the weather. "'I don't care if it rains till Christmas,' said the dissipated-looking youth, who had successfully finished a game of euchre with a dirty pack of cards and an equally unclean companion. "'It's no odds to us, so long's the creeks don't rise and block us going to the big smoke to blue our checks. I don't hold with too much fine weather at shearing time.' "'Why not?' said his late antagonist, staring gloomily at the cards, as if he held them responsible for his losses. "'Why not?' repeated the first speaker. "'Cause there's no fun in watching of blooming shearers making their pound and thirty bob a day, while we can't raise a mag over three and six. At it all hours, like so many working bullocks, and turned out the minute shearing's over, like a lot of unclaimed strangers after a cattle muster. "'Why did you come here at all?' asked a tall, broad-shouldered cornstalk from the neighbourhood of Penrith. "'Nobody asked you. There was plenty for the work afore you struck in. It's you town larrikins that spoil the sheds. Black garden and gambling and growling from daylight till dark. If I were the boss, I'd set bait for ye, same as the dingoes. "'You shut up and go home to your pumpkin-patch,' reported the card-player with sudden animation. You Sydney siders think no one can work stock but yourself. You've no right this side of the Murrumbidgee, if it comes to that, and I'll make one of a crowd to start you back where you came from, and end all you back-leg lot. Put up your hands, you spieler, said the New South Wales man, making one long stride toward the lightweight, who, standing easily on guard, appeared in no way anxious to decline the combat. Come, none of that Junipian chap said a good-humoured authority voice. No scrappin' till shearing's over, or I'll stop your pay. Besides, it's a daylight start tomorrow morning. I've a paddock to clear, and the glass is rising. The weather's going to take up. This was the second overseer, whose word was law until the cobbler was shorn, and the last man with the last sheep left the shed amid derisive cheers. After a little subdued growling, the combatants, there being no grog to inflame their angry passion, subsided. What's that old Bill was saying about horses and men's lives? I heard it from outside, demanded the centurion. Any duffing going on? Why, Joe Downey passed the remark, made answer a wiry-looking old hand, then engaged in mending one of his boots so neatly that he might have passed for a journeyman shoemaker, had it not been an open secret that he had learnt the trade within the walls of a jail. But if a man was to shake a horse here, and ride him into Queensland, he'd never get copped. 
Oh, wouldn't he, eh? And why did Bill get his hair off? Well, Bill, he says, you're a damned young fool, says he. I've seen smarter men than you lose their lives over a ten-pound horse. Yes, and bring better men to the same edge. But he said something about five men, persisted the overseer. What did he mean by that? What did I mean by that? said the old man, who had now drawn nearer, in stern and strident tones. Why, what I say, it's God's truth as I stand here, and the whole five of them now is in their graves. As fine a lot of men, too, as ever you see, all along of one blasted mare worth about two fivers, and be hanged to her. The old man's speech had a sort of rude eloquence born of earnestness which chained the attention of the variously composed crowd. And when Mr. Macdonald, the overseer, said, Come, Bill, let's have it. It's a lost day, and we may as well hear your yarn as anything else before turn-in time. The old man, thus adjured, took his pipe out of his mouth, and seating himself upon a three-legged stool, prepared to deliver himself of a singular and tragic experience. William James, chiefly referred to as Old Bill, was a true type of the veritable old hand of pre-auriferous Australia. Concerning an early voyage to Tasmania, he was reticent. He referred to the period ambiguously as them old times, when he related tales of mystery and fear, such as could only found place under the regime of forced colonisation. No hirsute ornament adorned his countenance. Deeply wrinkled, but ever clean-shaved, it was a face furrowed and graven, as with a life-record of the darker passions and such various sufferings as the human animal alone can endure and live. Out of this furnace of tribulation, old Bill had emerged, in a manner purified and reformed. He gave one the impression of a retired pirate convinced of the defects of the profession, but regretful of its pleasing episodes. Considered as a bush labourer, a more useful individual to a colony did not live. Bill could do everything well, and do twice as much, as the less endurated industrialist of a latter day. Hardy, resourceful, tireless, true to his salt, old Bill had often been considered by the sanguine or inexperienced employer an invaluable servant. And so, in truth, he was, until the fatal day where arrived when the check fever assailed him. Then, alas, he was neither to hoard nor to bind. No reason, interest, promise or principle had power to restrain him from the mad debauch when for days, perhaps for weeks, all semblance of manhood was lost. However, he was now in the healthful stage of constant work, well-fed, paid and sheltered. Cooking was one of his many accomplishments. In it he excelled, while, despite his age, his courage and determination sufficed to keep the turbulent rouseabouts in order. In his leisure hours he was prone to improve the occasion by demonstrating the folly of colliding with the law, its certain victory, its terrible penalties and of the gloomy sequel to a solitary act was the present story. "'I mind,' he began, pushing back the grey hair, which he wore long and carefully brushed, "'when I was working on a rung near the Queensland border, 
"'It's many a long year ago. "'But that says nothing. "'Some of you chaps is as young and foolish as this Jack Danvers "'as I'm a-going to tell ye about.' "'Well, some of us were starting a bit of a spree-like after shearing. "'We'd all got tidy checks. "'Some was going one way and some another. "'Jack and his mate to Queensland, "'where they expected a big job of work. "'Just as we were saddling up, some of us had one neddy, some two. A mob of horses comes by. I knew who they belonged to, a squatter not far off. Among them was a fine lump of a brown filly, three years old, half-bred but with good action. "'That's a good filly,' says Jack. He'd had a few glasses. She could be roped handy in the old cattle-yard near the creek. Lead easy, too, long with the other mokes.' "'Don't be a darned fool, Jack,' says I. "'There'll be a bloomin' row over her. "'You take it from me. "'She's safe to be missed, and you'll be tracked up. "'Damn it all, man,' says I. "'What's a ten-pound filly for a man to lose his liberty over? "'If it was a big touch, it might be different.' "'You're a fine cove to preach,' says he, quite savage. "'The grog had got into his head, I could see.' "'Mind your own business. "'I heard his mate, he was a rank badden, "'say something to him, and they rode away steady, "'but the same road that the mob had gone. "'I went off with some of the other chaps "'as were inside having a last drink, "'and thought no more about Jack Danvers "'and the brown filly till nigh a year after. "'Then it came out. The filly had been spotted of working in a team by the man that bred her. The carrier bought her square and honest, had a receipt from a storekeeper. They found the storekeeper in Queensland. He'd bought her from another man. What sort of a man? Why, a tall, good-looking chap, like a flash shearer. Word went to the police at Wawilla. It was Jack Danvers, of course. They'd suspected him and his mate all the time. Well, Jack was nabbed, though he was out on a Queensland digging far enough away. They sent up his description from the shed we'd left together, and he was brought down in irons as he made a fight of it. The storekeeper swore to him positive as the man that had sold him the brown J.D. filly. Old Jerry Dawson, she was. The jury found him guilty, and he got three years. Now I'm on to the part of the play where the ante-up comes in. You mind me, you young fellows, it always does, sooner or later. He'd no call to shake that filly. I said so then, and I say so now. And what comes of it? Listen, and I'll tell you. Death in five chapters. And so simple, all along of an unbroke filly. Now, Jack wasn't the man to stop inside of prison walls if he could help it. He and another chap made a rush one day, knock over the warder and collar his revolver. Another warder comes out to help. Jack shoots him dead, and they clear. Man's life number one. Big reward offered. They stick up a roadside inn next. Somebody gave them away. Police waiting on them as they walk in dead of night. Soon as they see the police, Jack shoots the innkeeper, poor devil. Thought he'd sold em. Man's life number two. 
Jack and his mate and the police bang away at each other at close quarters. Trooper wounded, Jack shot dead, mate wounded, dies next day. Man's lives number four. Who gave the office to the police and collared the blood money? Friend of Jack's, a pal. Five hundred quid was too much for him. What became of him? Job leaked out somehow. Friends and family dropped him. The money did him no good. Took to drinking straight ahead and died in the horrors within the year. Man's lives number five. Yes, he was the fifth man to go down. Two pound apiece their lives fetched. They're in their graves because Jack Danvers was a damned fool. And when he was young, strong, good-looking and well-liked, must go and duff a man's mare out of sheer foolishness. He didn't see what was to come of it, or he'd have cut off his right hand first. But that's the way of it. We don't see them things until it's too late. But mark my word, you young chaps, as has got all the world before you, take a fool's advice. It don't pay to go on the cross. Never did, and there's no one as cause to know it better than old Bill James. By George, said the overseer, that's the best yarn I've heard for a year. And if the parson preaches a better sermon when he holds service in the woolshed next Sunday, I'll be surprised. End of Five Lives for One Horse by Rolf Boldrewood Full Fathom Five by William Shakespeare This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Full fathom five thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change, into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell. Ding dong, hark, now I hear them. Ding dong, bell. End of full fathom five by William Shakespeare. Read by Lucy Perry, in Bath, on July 23, 2010. Amy Margaret's Five Years Old, by William Allingham. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Amy Margaret's Five Years Old. Amy Margaret's hair is gold, dearer twenty thousandfold than gold is Amy Margaret. Amy is friend, is Margaret, the pearl for crown or carcanet, or peeping daisy, summer's pet. Which are you, Amy Margaret? A friend, a daisy, and a pearl, a kindly, simple, precious girl, such howsoe'er the world may twirl. Be ever, Amy Margaret. End of Amy Margaret's Five Years Old by William Allingham Recorded by Lucy Perry in Bath on July 23, 2010 The Five Wise Words of the Guru by Andrew Lang This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Once there lived a handsome young man named Ram Singh, who, though a favourite with everyone, was unhappy because he had a scold for a stepmother. All day long she went on talking, until the youth was driven so distracted that he determined to go away somewhere and seek his fortune. No sooner had he decided to leave his home than he made his plans, and the very next morning he started off with a few clothes in a wallet and a little money in his pocket. But there was one person in the village to whom he wished to say good-bye, and that was a wise old guru, or teacher, who had taught him much. So he turned his face first of all towards his master's hut, and before the sun was well up was knocking at his door. The old man received his pupil affectionately, but he was wise in reading faces, and saw at once that the youth was in trouble. "'My son,' said he, "'what is the matter?' "'Nothing, father,' replied the young man, "'but I have determined to go into the world and seek my fortune.' "'Be advised,' returned the guru, "'and remain in your father's house. "'It is better to have half a loaf at home "'than to seek a whole one in distant countries.' But Ram Singh was in no mood to heed such advice, and very soon the old man ceased to press him. "'Well,' said he at last, "'if your mind is made up, I suppose you must have your way. "'But listen carefully, and remember five parting counsels which I will give you. "'And if you keep these, no evil shall befall you. First, always obey without question the orders of him whose service you enter. Second, never speak harshly or unkindly to anyone. Third, never lie. Fourth, Never try to appear the equal of those above you in station. And fifth, wherever you go, if you meet those who read or teach from the holy books, stay and listen, if but for a few minutes, that you may be strengthened in the path of duty. Then Ram Singh started out upon his journey, promising to bear in mind the old man's words. After some days he came to a great city. He had spent all the money which he had at starting, and therefore resolved to look for work, however humble it might be. Catching sight of a prosperous-looking merchant standing in front of a shop full of grain of all kinds, Ram Singh went up to him and asked whether he could give him anything to do. The merchant gazed at him so long that the young man began to lose heart, but at length he answered, "'Yes, of course, there is a place waiting for you.' "'What do you mean?' asked Ram Singh. "'Why?' replied the other. "'Yesterday our Raja's chief wazir dismissed his body-servant and is wanting another.' "'Now you are just the sort of person that he needs, "'for you are young and tall and handsome. "'I advise you to apply there.' "'Thanking the merchant for this advice, "'the young man set out at once for the wazir's house, "'and soon managed, thanks to his good looks and appearance, "'to be engaged as the great man's servant. "'One day soon after this, the rajah of the place started on a journey, "'and the chief wazir accompanied him. "'With them was an army of servants and attendants, "'soldiers, muleteers, camel-drivers, merchants with grain and stores for man and beast, singers to make entertainment by the way, and musicians to accompany them, besides elephants, camels, horses, mules, ponies, donkeys, goats and carts and wagons of every kind and description, so that it seemed more like a large town on the march than anything else. Thus they travelled for several days, till they entered a country that was like a sea of sand, where the swirling dust floated in clouds, and men and beast were half-choked by it. Towards the close of that day they came to a village, and when the headman hurried out to salute the Raja and to pay him their respects, they began, 
with very long and serious faces, to explain that whilst they and all that they had were of course at the disposal of the Rajah, the coming of so large a company had nevertheless put them into a dreadful difficulty, because they had never a well nor spring of water in their country, and they had no water to give to drink to such an army of men and beasts. Great fear fell upon the host at the word of the headman, but the Rajah merely told the wazir that he must get water somehow, and that settled the matter so far as he was concerned. The wazir sent off in haste for all the oldest men in the place, and began to question them as to whether there were no wells nearby. They all looked helplessly at each other, and said nothing, but at length one old greybeard replied, "'Truly, Sir Wazir, there is, within a mile or two of this village, a well which some former king made hundreds of years ago. It is, they say, great and inexhaustible, covered in by heavy stonework, and with a flight of steps leading down to the water in the very bowels of the earth. But no man ever goes near it, because it is haunted by evil spirits, and it is known that whoso disappears down the well shall never be seen again. The wazir stroked his beard and considered a moment. Then he turned to Ram Singh, who stood behind his chair. "'There is a proverb,' said he, "'that no man can be trusted until he has been tried. Go you and get the Raja and his people water from this well.' There flashed into Ram Singh's mind the first counsel of the old guru. Always obey without question the orders of him whose service you enter. So he replied at once that he was ready, and left to prepare for his adventure. Two great brazen vessels were fastened to a mule, two lesser ones he bound upon his shoulders, and thus provided he set out, with the old villager for his guide. In a short time they came to a spot where some big trees towered above the barren country, whilst under their shadow lay the dome of an ancient building. This the guide pointed out as the well, but excused himself from going further, as he was an old man, and tired, and it was already near sunset, so that he must be returning home. So Ram Singh bade him farewell, and went on alone with the mule. Arrived at the trees, Ram Singh tied up his beast, lifted the vessels from his shoulder, and having found the opening of the well, descended by a flight of steps which led down into the darkness. The steps were broad white slabs of alabaster, which gleamed in the shadows as he went lower and lower. All was very silent. Even the sound of his bare feet upon the pavement seemed to wake an echo in that lonely place. And when one of the vessels which he carried slipped and fell upon the steps, it clanged so loudly that he jumped at the noise. Still he went on, until at last he reached a wide pool of sweet water, and there he washed his jars with care before he filled them and began to remount the steps with the lighter vessels, as the big ones were so heavy he could only take up one at a time. Suddenly something moved above him, and looking up he saw a great giant standing on the stairway. In one hand he held clasped to his heart a dreadful-looking mass of bones. In the other was a lamp which cast long shadows about the walls, and made him seem even more terrible than he really was. "'What think you, O mortal?' said the giant. "'Of my fair and lovely wife.' "'And he held the light towards the bones in his arms, "'and looked lovingly at them. "'Now I must tell you that this poor giant "'had had a very beautiful wife, "'whom he had loved dearly. "'But when she died, her husband refused to believe in her death, "'and always carried her about, "'long after she had become nothing but bones. "'Ram Singh, of course, did not know of this, "'but there came to his mind the second wise saying of the Guru, "'which forbade him to speak harshly or inconsiderately to others.' So he replied, "'Truly, sir, I am sure you could find nowhere such another.' "'Ah, 
"'What eyes you have!' cried the delighted giant. "'You at least can see. "'I do not know how often I have slain those who insulted her "'by saying she was but dried bones. "'You are a fine young man, and I will help you.' "'So saying, he laid down the bones with great tenderness, "'and snatching up the huge brass vessels, "'carried them up again, and replaced them with such ease "'that it was all done by the time Ram Singh "'had reached the open air with the smaller ones. "'Now!' said the giant. You have pleased me, and you may ask of me one favour, and whatever you wish I will do it for you. Perhaps you would like me to show you where lies buried the treasure of dead kings, he asked eagerly. But Ram Singh shook his head at the mention of buried wealth. The favour that I would ask, said he, is that you will leave off haunting this well, so that men may go in and out and obtain water. Perhaps the giant had expected some favour more difficult to grant, for his face brightened, and he promised to depart at once. And as Ram Singh went off through the gathering darkness with his precious burden of water, he beheld the giant striding away with the bones of his dead wife in his arms. Great was the wonder and rejoicing in the camp when Ram Singh returned with the water. He never said anything, however, about his adventure with the giant, but merely told the Raja that there was nothing to prevent the well being used. And used it was, and nobody ever saw any more of the giant. The Raja was so pleased with the bearing of Ram Singh that he ordered the wazir to give the young man to him in exchange for one of his own servants. So Ram Singh became the Raja's attendant, and as the days went by the king became more and more delighted with the youth, because, mindful of the old guru's third counsel, he was always honest and spoke the truth. He grew in favour rapidly, until at last the Raja made him treasurer, and thus he reached a high place in the court, and had wealth and power in his hands. Unluckily the Raja had a brother who was a very bad man, and this brother thought that if he could win the young treasurer over to himself, he might by this means manage to steal little by little any of the king's treasure which he needed. Then, with plenty of money, he could bribe the soldiers and some of the Raja's counsellors, head a rebellion, dethrone and kill his brother, and reign himself instead. He was too wary, of course, to tell Ram Singh of all these wicked plans, but he began by flattering him whenever he saw him, and at last offered him his daughter in marriage. But Ram Singh remembered the fourth counsel of the old guru, never to try to appear the equal of those above him in station, and therefore he respectfully declined the great honour of marrying a princess. Of course the prince, baffled at the very beginning of his enterprise, was furious, and determined to work Ram Singh's ruin, and entering the Raja's presence, he told him a story about Ram Singh having spoken insulting words of his sovereign and of his daughter. What it was all about nobody knew, and, as it was not true, the wicked prince did not know either, but the Raja grew very angry and red in the face as he listened, and declared that until the treasurer's head was cut off, neither he, nor the princess, nor his brother, would eat or drink. But, added he, I do not wish any one to know that this was done by my desire, and any one who mentions the subject will be severely punished. And with this the prince was forced to be content. Then the Raja sent for an officer of his guard, and told him to take some soldiers, and ride at once to a tower which was situated just outside the town, and if any one should come to inquire when the building was going to be finished, or should he ask any other questions about it, the officer must chop his head off and bring it to him. As for the body, that could be buried on the spot. The old officer thought these instructions rather odd, but it was no business of his, so he saluted and went off to do his master's bidding. Early in the morning... The Raja, who had not slept all night, sent for Ram Singh, a 
and bade him to go to the new hunting tower and ask the people there how it was getting on and when it was going to be finished and to hurry back with the answer away went ram singh upon his errand but on the road as he was passing a little temple on the outskirts of the city he heard someone inside reading aloud and remembering the guru's fifth counsel he just stepped inside and sat down to listen for a minute he did not mean to stay longer but became so deeply interested in the wisdom of the teacher that he sat and sat and sat while the sun rose higher and higher in the meantime the wicked prince who dared not disobey the rajah's command was feeling very hungry and as for the princess she was quietly crying in a corner waiting for the news of ram singh's death so that she might eat her breakfast hours passed and stare as he might from the window no messenger could be seen at last the prince could bear it no longer and hastily disguising himself so that no one should recognize him he jumped on a horse and galloped out to the hunting tower where the rajah had told him that the execution was to take place but when he got there there was no execution going on there were only some men engaged in building and a number of soldiers idly watching them he forgot that he had disguised himself and that no one would know him so riding up he cried out now then you men why are you idling about here instead of finishing what you came to do when is it to be done at his words the soldiers looked at the commanding officer who was standing a little apart from the rest unperceived by the prince he made a slight sign a sword flashed in the sun and off flew a head on the ground beneath as part of the prince's disguise had been a thick beard the men did not recognize the dead man as the rajah's brother but they wrapped the head in a cloth and buried the body as their commander bade them when this was ended the officer took the cloth and rode off in the direction of the palace meanwhile the rajah came home from his council and to his great surprise found neither head nor brother awaiting him as time passed on he became uneasy and thought that he had better go himself and see what the matter was so ordering his horse he rode off alone it happened that just as the rajah came near to the temple where ram singh still sat the young treasurer hearing the sound of a horse's hoofs looked over his shoulder and saw the rider was the rajah himself feeling much ashamed of himself for having forgotten his errand he jumped up and hurried out to meet his master who reined up his horse and seemed very surprised as indeed he was to see him at that moment there arrived the officer of the guard carrying his parcel he saluted the rajah gravely and dismounting laid the bundle in the road and began to undo the wrappings whilst the rajah watched him with wonder and interest when the last string was undone and the head of his brother was displayed to his view the rajah sprang from his horse and caught the soldier by the arm as soon as he could speak he questioned the man as to what had occurred and little by little a dark suspicion darted through him then briefly telling the soldier that he had done well the rajah drew ram singh to one side and in a few minutes learned from him how in attending to the guru's counsel he had delayed to do the king's message in the end the rajah found from some papers the proof of his dead brother's treachery and ram singh established his innocence and integrity he continued to serve the rajah for many years with unswerving fidelity and married a maiden of his own rank in life with whom he lived happily dying at last honoured and loved by all men sons were born to him and in time to them also he taught the five wise sayings of the old guru end of the five wise words of the guru by andrew lang read by lucy perry in bath on july 23rd 2010
Vijf uit één schil door Hans Christian Andersen, vertaald door Simon Jacob Andriessen. Dit is ingesproken ter gelegenheid van de vijfde verjaardag van LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-opnamen zijn in het publieke domein. Voor meer informatie of om ook vrijwilliger te worden, ga naar LibriVox.org. Vijf uit één schil Er zaten vijf erten in één schil. Zij en de schil waren groen. Daarom dachten zij dat de hele wereld groen was. En dat is niet meer dan natuurlijk. De schil groeide en de erten ook. Ze maakten het zich zo gemakkelijk mogelijk. Ze zaten op een rijtje. De zon scheen van buiten en koesterde de schil. De regen maakte haar helder en doorzichtig. Het was er overdag licht en s'nachts donker in, zoals het wezen moet. De erten werden, nu ze daar eenmaal zo zaten, groter en begonnen gedurig meer na te denken, want iets moesten zij toch doen. Moeten we hier nu eeuwig blijven zitten? vroeg er een. Als ze van het lange zitten maar niet stijf en stram worden, ik zou toch wel zeggen dat er buiten nog iets is. Ik heb daar zo'n zeker voorgevoel van. Weken verliepen er. De erten werden geel en de schil werd geel. De hele wereld wordt geel, zeiden zij, en daarin hadden ze gelijk. Eensklaps voelden zij een ruk aan de schil. Deze werd afgeplukt, raakte in mensenhanden, gleed in de zak van een buis en kwam in gezelschap van andere gevulde schillen. Nu zal de schil wel gauw opengemaakt worden, zeiden ze, en wachten daarop reeds. Ik zou wel eens willen weten wie van ons het nu wel het verst zal brengen, zei de kleinste der vijf. Ja, nu zal dit al spoedig uitkomen. Er geschieden wat er geschieden moet, zei de grootste. Knap! Daar ging de schil open, en nu rolden al de vijven uit in de heldere zonneschijn. Daar lagen ze nu in de hand van een kind. Een kleine jongen hield ze omklemd en zei dat het mooie erten voor zijn klakkenbus waren. En terstond deed hij er een in en schoot er haar uit. Nu vlieg ik de wijde wereld in. Pak me maar als je kunt. En met deze woorden vloog ze weg. Ik, zei de tweede, ik vlieg regelrecht in de zon. Dat is een schil die juist voor mij past. Weg was zij. We zullen ons te slapen leggen waar we te land komen, zeiden de twee volgende. Maar we zullen wel voortrollen. Ze rolden dan ook voort en vielen op de grond voordat ze in de klakkenbus kwamen. Maar in kwamen ze toch. Wij zullen het het verst brengen. Er geschiedde wat er geschieden moet, zei de laatste, terwijl ze uit de klakkenbus geschoten werd. Ze vloog op een oud bloemenplankje voor het raam van een zolderkamertje in een reet die met mos en aarde gevuld was. Het mos sloot zich om haar samen. Daar lag zij, weliswaar gevangen, maar toch niet vergeten door de goede God. Er geschiedde wat er geschieden moet, zeide zij. Daar op dat kleine zolderkamertje woonde een arme vrouw, die overdag uitging om te wassen, schoon te maken en dergelijke arbeid te verrichten, want ze was sterk en ook vlijtig, maar ze bleef toch altijd arm. Thuis in het kamertje lag haar enig dochtertje, een meisje van acht jaar, dat zeer fijn en teer was. Sedert een jaar was zij bedlegerig en het scheen alsof zij niet kon leven of sterven. Ze gaat naar haar zusje toe, zei de vrouw. Ik heb slechts twee kinderen gehad en het was geen lichte taak voor beiden te zorgen. En de goede God deelde met mij en nam het ene tot zich. Maar nu zou ik toch graag het andere, dat mij nog overgebleven is, willen behouden. Maar God wil waarschijnlijk niet dat zij van elkaar gescheiden blijven, en mijn zieke lieveling zal naar haar zusje daarboven gaan. Maar het zieke meisje bleef waar het was. 
Het lag de hele dag geduldig en stil in haar bedje, terwijl haar moeder buitenshuis werkte om iets te verdienen. Het was lente, en smorgens in de vroegte, toen de vrouw juist naar haar werk wilde gaan, scheen de zon lieflijk en vriendelijk door het kleine raam en wierp haar stralen op de vloer, en het zieke meisje vestigde haar blik op de onderste ruit. Wat zou toch dat groen zijn, dat daar boven het raam komt uitkijken? Het beweegt zich door de wind. Haar moeder ging naar het raam toe en schoof dit half open. Wel, riep ze uit, dat is waarlijk een kleine ert die hier ontkiemd is en haar groene bladeren doet uitspruiten. Hoe zou ze toch wel hier in de reet gekomen zijn? Dat is een klein tuintje waarmee je je vermaken kunt. Het ledekantje der kleine werd dichter aan het raam geschoven, opdat zij de ontkiemende ert zou kunnen zien, en de moeder ging heen om te werken. Moeder, ik geloof dat ik weer gezond zal worden, zei het zieke meisje s'avonds. De zon heeft hier vandaag zo lieflijk warm in mijn kamertje geschenen. De kleine ert gedijt heerlijk, en ook ik zal zeker gedijen en opstaan en mij in de zonneschijn koesteren. Dat geven God, zei de moeder, maar ze geloofde niet dat het zou gebeuren. Doch het ontkiemende groen, dat aan het kind zulke blijde gedachten des levens ingeboezemd had, ondersteunden zij met een stokje, opdat het niet door de wind zou geknakt worden. Ze bond een eindje touw aan de bloemenplank en aan het bovengedeelte van het raam vast, opdat de ertenrank iets zou hebben waarom ze zich heen kon slingeren wanneer ze omhoog schoot. Dat deed zij, en men kon zien hoe zij met elke dag groeide. Waarlijk, er komt een bloesem aan, zei de vrouw op zekere morgen, en nu herleefde ook in haar de hoop dat haar ziek dochtertje zou herstellen. Zij herinnerde zich dat het kind in de laatste tijd veel levendiger gesproken had, dat ze zich sedert verscheidene dagen smorgens in haar bedje opgericht en daar gezeten had, en met een oog, stralend van geluk, de kleine ertentuin, die uit een enkel ert voortgekomen was, bekeken had. Een week later bleef de zieke voor de eerste maal een geheel uur op. Gelukkig zat ze in de warme zonneschijn. Het raam was opgeschoven, en daarvoor stond een ertenplant in volle bloei. Het meisje boog zich voorover en drukte een kus op de tere blaadjes. Deze dag was voor haar als het ware een feestdag. De goede God zelf heeft haar geplant en laten gedijen, tot hoop en tot vreugde voor ons beiden, zei de verheugde moeder en lachte de bloesem toe, alsof hij een goede engel gods was. Maar de andere erten nu? Ja, die, welke de wijde wereld ingevlogen was en gezegd had, pak me maar als je kunt, viel in de dakgoot en raakte in een duivenmaag, en daar lag zij evenals Jonas in de buik van de walvis. De twee luiaards brachten het even ver, ook zij werden door duiven opgegeten, en dus waren zij toch op enigerlei wijze nuttig. Maar de vierde, die naar de zon op wilde vliegen, die viel in een riool, en bleef daar dagen en weken lang in het morsige water liggen, en zwol geducht op. Ik word zo mooi dik, zei de ert, ik zal nog barsten, en verder, geloof ik, heeft geen ert het ooit gebracht, of zal het immer brengen. Ik ben de merkwaardigste van de vijf uit de schil. En het riool was het met haar eens. Maar het meisje stond daar voor het raam van het zolderkamertje met stralende ogen, met de blos der gezondheid op de wangen, en vouwde haar tere handjes boven de ertenbloesem en dankte God daarvoor. Ik, zeide het riool echter, ik heb mijn ert liever. Einde van Vijf uit één schil door Hans Christian Andersen Vertaald door Simon Jacob Andriessen Gelezen door Anna Simon Hunted Down or 
Five Days in the Fog by Harry Grenice. This is recorded to celebrate the fifth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hunted Down, or Five Days in the Fog, a thrilling narrative of the escape of young Grenice from a drunken, infuriated mob. Written by himself while in jail, and respectfully dedicated to Mr. Nicholas Breen. Preface I write this narrative while confined in the Modesto jail, awaiting my trial for the shooting of the defamer of my mother's name on the 7th of December, 1874. It will be seen by reading the following statement, that I gave myself up to the sheriff to be held to await the decision of the law. I will here explain why it was necessary for me to be taken to the Modesto jail. There was no safe jail in Merced, and it had been the custom for several months to take Merced prisoners to Modesto, a town in the adjoining county, and a distance of about forty miles. The cars passed through Merced at noon on the day of the shooting, five hours after the affair happened, and directly to Modesto. Why did not the sheriff improve this opportunity of taking me to a place of safety? Failing that, a good span of horses could have conveyed us to Modesto during the afternoon. He knew the jail was not safe, and instead of doing what every sensible man would conceive to be a sheriff's duty, he chose rather to send me out handcuffed, with two men, on a public highway, to a lone wayside inn, seven miles from Merced, and ten from Snelling's. It seems from my brother's and several other gentlemen's statement that every horse was engaged at the livery stable in Merced before eight o'clock on that night. There is another question which will naturally arise in the thinking mind. Where did the sheriff go, and what was he doing that night while the mob was getting ready? The mystery may be solved some day. I wish to show in this simple statement that I did not flee coward-like from justice, but that I was making my escape from a drunken, infuriated mob, after being duly liberated by the deputy sheriff. I understand that the mob, or a portion of the mob, that night returned and destroyed my stepfather's printing office, although the sheriff was in town. H. H. Grenice Hunted Down, or Five Days in the Fog Oh, why this fog so thick and dark for five long days and nights? It seems as though kind providence has veiled the heavenly lights. That he who seeks his life to save shall live to tell the tale of drunken mobs and demon cries, like legions just from hell. On Monday morning, at about fifteen minutes to eight o'clock, December 7th, 1874, immediately after the shooting, or as soon thereafter as I could collect my scattered senses, which was in about three minutes, I inquired for the sheriff for the purpose of giving myself up. But he, nor any of his deputies, were on the spot. After waiting a few minutes longer, I began to grow impatient at the delay of the officers, and not wishing to move from the scene of the shooting, for fear the movement would be misconstrued and I be accused of trying to effect an escape, I sent a messenger in quest of Sheriff Meany. I forget now who the messenger was. In a short time thereafter, Sheriff Meany arrived on the spot, and perceiving him, I addressed him thus, Sheriff Meany, I am your prisoner. He grabbed me in a rather rough manner by the lapel of my coat, took me to the lock-up, thence to El Capitan Hotel, and after remaining at the latter place for half an hour, for what reason I know not, he conducted me back to the lock-up, thrust me in, and turned the key on me. In a short time thereafter my breakfast was brought to me without knife or fork to eat with. The victuals were not fit for a dog to eat. I so expressed myself to Meany, 
and asked him to give me a decent breakfast. He answered me thus, That has got to answer. Can't treat you different from the other prisoners. With the exception of the coffee, I set the breakfast aside. In the meantime, quite a crowd had collected outside the jail, and Meany was inciting them to mob violence by his vindictive expressions against me. I kept perfectly quiet and said nothing to Meany nor his deputies. Suspecting the duplicity of Meany, I dispatched a courier for my brother George, who was living some fifteen miles north of Merced. My brother arrived in town about noon, and immediately came to me. He was searched by Meany, and then admitted into the lock-up. He had hardly shaken hands with me when he heard Meany say something, and turning to me remarked, I hear Meany talking, and I think it is unsafe to be here, as I am in their power while shut up in here. He immediately asked to be let out, and his request was acceded to. In the course of the day a fellow named Packard, a shoulder-hitter of Meany's, came skulking about the jail and, picking up a gun, attempted to get an opportunity to shoot me through the bars of the lock-up. I perceived his intention in time to hug the wall directly under the bars, thereby preventing him from assassinating me. The deputy sheriff told him to put the gun down, that he had no right to pick it up. After loitering around a few minutes longer, Meany came up, and then this Packard commenced to annoy me with insulting remarks, and although Meany was there and heard him, he said nothing to him. He left shortly after, indulging in the remarks mentioned above, and afterwards I learned that he returned and tried to shoot me through the bars of the jail with a pistol. I knew that my danger was great, and my only hope was in my friends protecting me, not the sheriff, for he had expressed himself in such a free manner in my hearing, although he did not know that I was listening, that I knew there was no protection to hope for from that source. Knowing this, I did not beseech him to save me. I merely asked him, when I gave myself into his custody, to take me before a justice of the peace. I would waive an examination and go to Modesto. It was eight o'clock in the morning when I delivered myself up to Meany. The cars would leave for Modesto at one p.m. There were, therefore, five hours in which to allow me to do that which would but take ten minutes, to wit, take me before a justice of the peace, and allow me to waive an examination. I told him it was dangerous for me to remain in Merced, and I wanted to waive and go to Modesto for safety. My attorney, P. D. Wigginton, mentioned the matter to many in my presence about nine o'clock in the morning. One hour passed, two hours, three, four. It was one o'clock and still Meany had done nothing, although repeatedly urged by my friends to do something. Well, when one o'clock arrived and I still remained in the lock-up, I knew what I could expect from Meany. I then made up my mind to say nothing to him, but let matters take their course and await developments. He, no doubt, was surprised that I did not beg him to take me to some place of safety, but I knew it was useless to ask him to save my life. I had asked him to take me to Modesto in order to prevent violence, and one o'clock arriving, I knew what his action meant, on account of his expressions used in my hearing while I was lying in the lock-up. It was plain to me that he was in sympathy with the mob, which I knew was rising. I said nothing, but kept my own counsel. A heavy fog came up at five o'clock p.m., and it was near dark at that hour. Meany opened the door and ordered me, in a quick, sharp, rough voice, to put on my coat, which I had taken off, in order the more easily to slip through the hands of the mob, in case they broke in the lock-up to take me out. Said Meany, Be quick. Put your coat on. Got to take you out of this right now, as they will be down here in less than an hour and hang you. 
I merely said to him, Why didn't you take me to Modesto when you could have done so with safety? That question was a poser to him, and he made some inarticulate reply. I put on my coat, and accompanied by Meany and Deputy Sheriff Breen, one carrying a double-barreled shotgun, the other a repeating rifle, started towards the new courthouse, which lies just at the edge of town. Upon reaching the southwest corner of the enclosure surrounding the building, I perceived a thorough brace awaiting us. John Hathaway had the lines, and I was handcuffed and put in the carriage with Deputy Breen, and Meany told Breen to go as far as the halfway house and there stop. After giving this order, he started back to town. I then saw through the whole arrangement. He had put me into the hands of a deputy, and as he confidently expected the mob would hang me, he would be free from blame and could say, Grenice was not in my hands, but in the hands of a deputy. During all this time I said nothing, although I thought a great deal. Hathaway drove, according to Meany's orders, toward the halfway house. It struck me, as well as the deputy sheriff and also Hathaway, as I afterwards learned from their conversation, that the mob was lying in wait at the bridge, at the crossing of Bear Creek. I kept a sharp lookout ahead, and in a few minutes the Bear Creek bridge loomed up through the fog, about one hundred yards ahead. I kept a steady eye on the structure as we drew near, expecting every second to see the forms of the devils. At last the bridge was reached and crossed, and that which I most dreaded and feared, the crossing of Bear Creek Bridge, was passed in safety. While crossing the bridge I looked behind and perceived eight men about one hundred yards behind, on foot, approaching the bridge. The program was not laid down quite right. They were about one minute behind time, thanks to John Hathaway's rapid driving, who, of course, together with the deputy sheriff, knew nothing of the little arrangement to get me on the road. But they strongly suspected, as I learned from a word that I caught from their whispered conversation. After crossing the bridge, Hathaway whipped up his horses, and we started off at a rapid pace for the halfway house. I heard Deputy Sheriff Breen remark to Hathaway, "'John, it's strange Meany didn't tell us to keep right on to Modesto, instead of stopping so near town. But I have got to follow instructions. If the mob comes, I'll turn Harry loose. Damned if I don't if there's no other recourse.' I then spoke up and said, "'Well, Mr. Breen, if you do, and I am alive, you will find me in the Modesto jail inside of a week.' He then remarked, "'Oh, they may not come.' The above remark was the only one I passed from the time of leaving the lock-up till I arrived at the halfway house, as I was deeply engaged in thought, trying to arrive at some plan to outwit the mob, whom I felt certain would be on my tracks ere long, if they were not so already.' It was half-past seven, or eight o'clock, when we arrived at the halfway house, six miles north of Merced. I was led into the house, securely handcuffed. The horses were taken out of their traces, then supper was ordered. We sat down to the table and ate our supper. After finishing my repast, I was conducted to a room and put to bed with the handcuffs on. I had no sooner laid down when I was agreeably surprised to see my brother George step into the room a young man about twenty years of age, and brave as a lion. Like a sleuth-hound he had scented me out. It was then between eight and nine o'clock. In presence of Hathaway, Breen, and the host, we held a hurried conversation. George was alarmed and on horseback, but his horse was completely fagged out. He said, I will ride to town, and if met by a mob on the road, I will put spurs to my horse and give the officer an alarm. I tried to dissuade him from running any risk, but he would not listen to me. He said, 
I will ride towards town. If I reach there without encountering the mob, I will get a fresh horse and stand guard by the bridge. He then left. I afterward learned that he reached town with his horse completely broken down, and applied to all their liver stables for another, but was told that they were all engaged, doubtless to the mob. After my brother's departure, the deputy sheriff removed one of the handcuffs from my wrist, fastened it on his own, and got in bed with me, Hathaway and Powell, the proprietors of the house, standing guard. Shortly after Breen retired, I dropped off to sleep. I had slept for some time when I heard Hathaway call to Breen in an undertone, "'Wake up, Nick. They are coming.' I immediately awoke my sleeping bedfellow, who, jumping up, listened for a moment. Breen stopped to listen again, when Hathaway explained, "'For God's sake, Nick, hurry up. They are right here.' Hathaway was white as a sheet, and he held a double-barreled shotgun in his hands in a determined manner, while Breen hastily picked up his pants from the floor, took out the key of the handcuffs, and taking me by my extended wrist, loosened it, it seemed an age, while he was feeling in his pocket for the key. At this instant I heard the fiends for the first time. They were then about a hundred yards from the house. I hurriedly put on my pants, shoes, and vest, and catching up my coat, I made a hasty exit out of the back door. As I did so, a terrible shout went up from the throats of the mob, which sounded like the yells of devils from the lower regions, and I thought they had discovered me as I passed out of the door. As soon as I reached the open air, I got down on my hands and knees and crawled very softly about fifty yards from the house, when I stopped and put my ear to the ground to see if they were yet on my track. The fog was very thick. One could not see three yards ahead. I listened for a second, then taking off my shoes to prevent making a noise, and putting on my coat, I crawled about one thousand yards. I then stopped to think what was best for me to do to outwit those seeking my life. I argued to myself that it was best to tack back towards Merced, as the mob would be apt to pursue me northward and eastward that night. They would imagine, so I thought, that I would flee before them, and strike for the Merced River, so I concluded to go where they would least expect to find me. I would return and strike for Bear Creek, which has very high banks and a narrow channel, but which at that time contained no water. If I could reach the creek, which was some seven miles off, before daybreak, I knew I would be safe for one day, at least, provided I was very cautious. With this resolution formed, I listened for a few seconds, and hearing nothing, I started to make a semicircle of the halfway house in order to get on the other side of it. By a bright light, which the fog magnified to at least ten times its size, which kept moving to and fro in and around the halfway house, which was either a torch or a lantern, I knew that the bloodthirsty crew were searching under the porch and in the outhouses for me. I had not proceeded a quarter of a mile after taking my resolve to get between the mob and Merced, when I came to the road leading from above the houses to Cox's Ferry. I stopped and listened for a second, and peered through the fog which was growing denser, and more dense as the night advanced, but could discern nothing but the bright light before mentioned, which I was utilizing as a guide to travel by. I then crossed the road. I no sooner had done so than I discovered two horsemen going towards Snelling. I fell flat on my face, scarcely daring to breathe, and they passed on without discovering me. While lying down, I watched them attentively to see if they suspected their close proximity to me as they were riding at that moment very slow, and were apparently on the alert for any sound which might possibly reach their ears. 
I saw several more horsemen, but luckily they did not see me before I had accomplished the semicircle around the halfway house. But after accomplishing that maneuver, I saw no one again that night, as I kept away from the roads and was not under the necessity of crossing any more. When about four miles from Merced, I altered my course slightly with the intention of striking Bear Creek, about one or two miles below town. But losing my reckoning, I reached the creek about five hundred yards from the bridge. It was now near daylight, and the fog was impenetrable to the eye, or at least all objects moving in it at a greater distance than fifty yards. Having reached the creek and put on my shoes, having walked all the way from the halfway house in my stocking feet, I proceeded up. By daylight I was opposite the county hospital farm, situated northeast of town. I cautiously passed beyond it, and as there was a road running on each side of the creek at this point, I scrambled up its banks and struck out toward the foothills, knowing that I would not be apt to encounter the mob off from a road, within a circle of five miles from Merced. I commenced to walk around a section of land, which was marked by a furrow, and which I think belonged to Upton. I had to keep walking to keep from freezing. I was now about two miles from the hospital grounds, the hour was about nine o'clock a.m., and up to this time I had only halted once, and then, for only a second to put on my shoes. I was sick, tired, thirsty, and commenced to feel hungry. I sat down for a while to rest. I was very weak and emaciated from a severe attack of the bloody flux, from which I had suffered several days prior to the shooting, and which continued during the first two days of my wandering. My mouth was dry and parched. There was no water to be seen. I looked at the grass. The fog had made it damp. I will try to suck the dampness, I thought. As I was preparing to do so, to my horror I discovered that my jaws were locked. I had doubtless clasped them firmly the night before, determined to escape, and in my eagerness had not opened my mouth, and that, together with the cold and thirst, had fastened them vice-like. I rubbed and worked nervously for several minutes. Then I bethought me of my printer rule, which was luckily in my vest pocket. With this I succeeded in prying my jaws apart, and with a few crumbs of tobacco, which I found in my pants pocket, I found relief. I then resumed my walk, would walk around the section and return to my starting point, alternatively walking a mile and resting for half an hour. Thus I passed some three hours. About noon the fog exhibited indications of clearing off and I thought it best to hunt the shelter of some friendly creek, for the double purpose of screening myself from view and quenching my thirst, which was becoming almost unbearable. Sick and hungry, I started in quest of Bear Creek, and after traveling about an hour, I realized the fact that I had become lost in the fog. Previous to this discovery, I had passed within sight of several houses, but not knowing all the inhuman wretches who were hunting me down, I durst not apply within for food and shelter from the cold, chilling fog, for fear of encountering someone in sympathy with the mob, if not one of the actual participants. Upon finding that I was lost, I began to blame myself for not going boldly into one of the several farmhouses, making myself known, requesting food and a conveyance to Fresno or Modesto, to deliver myself up to a sheriff who was not an actual participant in the mob, much less in sympathy with the same. But I kept up my courage and tried to discover my bearings. I thought I must be somewhere near Mariposa Creek, so trudging along for about two hours longer, I found that I had guessed rightly, and I struck the above-mentioned creek about a mile or two north of the railroad crossing, and knew my whereabouts to a certainty. I clambered down its steep banks on one side, and up on the other, when I spied a man about one hundred yards distant, 
armed with a rifle. Although the fog still continued to hang over the valley, I was fearful lest he had seen me. Immediately upon sighting him I crouched down in the tall grass, which grew quite rank on the banks of the creek at this particular spot, and cautiously raised my head to see if I had been discovered. As I did so, I perceived he had seen me. He was about sixty or eighty yards off, was standing with his face towards me, and had just made a movement to approach my hiding-place, when with a sudden impulse I seized a long shovel-handle, which I had picked up early in the morning for use as a walking-stick, and lying flat on my stomach brought it to bear on the man. My ruse was successful. He evidently took the harmless weapon for a rifle, and immediately disappeared in the fog, going up the creek. This man, whoever he was, no doubt thinks to this day that someone took him for Grenice, and that he ran a narrow risk of being shot, with a shovel-handle. As I said before, he took up the creek, and I proceeded down, and about four o'clock I struck the railway crossing seven or eight miles from Merced. Still keeping on the north side of the track, I proceeded toward that town, being careful to keep away from the roads. After proceeding two or three miles, I concluded to get to the other side of the track, and with that object in view, tried to catch a view of the telegraph poles in order to find the track. In a few minutes I discovered them. In order to change my position to the other side of the track, I would have to cross two roads, one on each side, which was a dangerous undertaking so near Merced in the daytime. But the fog gave me courage, and I started. I had just crossed over the track, meantime keeping my eyes on all sides of me, when I discovered a man riding along toward Merced. I immediately dropped flat, and he rode past, all unconscious of my near presence. This fellow, I should judge from his paraphernalia, consisting of a six-shooter, bowie knife, and gun, was one of the brave crowd whom I encountered the preceding night at the halfway house. The horse was completely fagged out, and his rider was evidently returning to Merced for a fresh movement. I know you, sir, I saw you, but you did not me. After the outlines of horse and rider faded away into the foggy mist, I hurriedly walked about a half-mile from the railroad, intending to lay in one of the many little hollows thereabouts and await the coming of dark. It was now about half-past four. Up to this time I had not had a drop of water, although I had hunted for it in creeks and hog-wallows. The cravings of appetite did not bother me much. My thirst was too keen. Arriving at the point just mentioned, I discovered a pool of muddy water, and getting on my hands and knees, I proceeded to slake my thirst. I took one swallow, and it burnt my throat like molten lead. It was alkali water, and the strongest I ever tasted. It was a bitter disappointment, but it was near night. I was but a few miles from town, and under the cover of darkness I could get water, and maybe something to eat. Night at last arrived, and under its sable folds I reached the railroad bed, and proceeded on my way, my place of destination, Merced. About seven o'clock I reached the outskirts of the town, and, proceeding cautiously to 14th Street, through Chinatown, crossed the railroad track below the El Capitan Hotel. Just as I stepped on the track two men passed on their way to town, evidently men from one of the farms beyond Merced. I was then about five hundred yards from my home, and I determined at any risk to find out the fate of my would-be brother and poor dear mother, whom I expected home on Monday night. Crawling on my hands and knees to within one hundred yards of the house, which was the last one at the end of 17th Street, I watched for about five minutes to see if the place was under surveillance of the mob. Discovering no indication of any one on the outside, I crept along, reached the back door, and cautiously tried to get a view into the interior, 
but could see nothing, as the windows were covered with heavy curtains. I shuddered at the gloomy appearance of everything about the house. I wondered if any of the family were dead within. I then opened the back door, and looking in discovered the children and a neighbor lady, Mrs. Keogh. When I opened the door, the children ran off frightened, as they did not know who I was. I hastily asked Mrs. Keogh where the family was. She replied, All gone. Are they alive? She answered, Yes. Just then I heard a noise at the front door, and beat a hasty retreat out the back door. I dare not venture back where there were so many children, so I went to another part of town, where I knew almost to a certainty those who were thirsting for my blood. I ventured to look into the house of two persons whom I did not know. I saw them through the windows of their house, and knew that if they were not friends, they were not enemies. Going to the door, I rapped. The door was opened, and standing in the dark, I requested a drink of water, which was handed to me. It was the first water I had tasted since leaving the halfway house. Then I stepped boldly into the room, and said, "'I suppose you know who I am. I am Grenice.' They remarked, "'Yes.' "'Well,' I said, "'Give me something to eat. I am almost starved.' Something told me that there was nothing to fear from these people. Telling them to put down the curtains and lock the door, I sat down to the table, and commenced to partake of a lunch which they set before me. I feared to eat too heartily, as I had not tasted food for twenty-four hours. After eating and drinking, and resting for about half an hour, I asked for a hat, as mine had been left at the halfway house the night before. One was given me, and also a blanket, and some victuals which I strapped up in the blanket, and throwing the whole over my shoulder, I signified my intention of departing, and left them, with the injunction to say nothing to any one about seeing me. They gave me their promise, which they faithfully kept. I then took up my weary march again. It had been walk, walk, since the preceding night. After leaving my newly made acquaintances, I struck off into the chilling fog, hardly knowing which way to turn. I had learned from these people that my brother and stepfather were being hunted down by Meany and his mob, and I knew that I must get away from the hotbed of their rendezvous, Merced, as soon as possible before daylight the next morning. I proceeded toward Modesto, on the railroad track, and kept up my weary tramp, 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 scarcely able to drag one foot after the other, until near morning. About four o'clock I reached a point about four miles from the Merced River, and one or two from the railroad, and I could proceed no further. Spreading my blanket, a single one, on the fog-damp earth, I laid down and slept for about an hour. The first rest and sleep for more than fifty-eight hours, unless it be the short stop I made while at Merced. But the sleep did me more harm than good, as the cold chilled me through and through, and left my limbs so stiff that I could scarcely stand, much less walk. I managed to drag my weary body back to the railroad, and just as I reached it I saw a hand-car coming down the track at a rapid rate. It was going toward the Merced River, to the section-house at that point. One white man and four or five Chinamen were in the car. Hailing the man, he stopped. I asked for a ride. He told me to jump on, and I did so, and sat right among the Chinamen. I told the man that I was hunting work, but had been taken sick and was scarcely able to travel, that I was going to Modesto, where I had friends. He said I was welcome to a ride. I watched him narrowly, and saw that he did not suspicion anything. I rode as far as the Merced River with him, and as he was going no farther, I was obliged to get off. He will probably be surprised to learn that that sick man hunting a job was Grenice, who at that time was being hunted down for his life, and for whom there were large imaginary rewards offered for his capture. 
I would advise him not to chide himself for his short-sightedness in not discovering whom I was, and thereby letting the reward slip through his hands, as I can assure him, had he captured me, he would have received not one dime for his pains. Sick, worn out, footsore, not knowing the fate of my poor mother, brother, and stepfather, I cautiously approached the saloon at Cressy Station, and peering through the window without being seen, I saw six or seven men sitting around the stove. I recognized but one among the number, the rest were strangers to me. Knowing my enemies, I saw at a glance there were none among these men. Half frozen and famished, I walked fearlessly into the bar-room and took a seat by the stove. Addressing the barkeeper, I asked for a glass of brandy. He evidently saw from my appearance that I was very sick, and needed a strong stimulant, and filling a glass half full of brandy, he handed it to me. Taking it, I drained every drop. I then commenced to warm my half-frozen body, but during the operation I was very silent. In a few minutes I felt revived, and I told the men that I was on my way to Modesto afoot, but that I was sick, and did not think that I could hardly make the trip. My acquaintance in the meantime said nothing, and did not even appear to recognize me. At last I succeeded in getting him to one side, and I told him I wanted to get to Modesto by some means. He said he could not help me, but would not inform on me. He told me he knew the men present, and that they would help me, if anything, to get out of the clutches of the mob. I told him I wanted to be kept out of Meany's hands, also that he was in with the mob, to my way of thinking. He said they all understood that, that they, the men, would see me safely through. Here I ate breakfast, after which I went and hid myself in a barn. Peeping through the cracks of the same, I saw Meany and some of the mob, just as the afternoon train arrived, talking with one of the men I had seen in the saloon, and I thought I would be discovered, sure. But in a few minutes the sheriff and posse left going up the river. I had guessed rightly. The men did not suspect me. If they did, they kept their own counsel. I learned, during the afternoon, that my mother was on that train on her way to Merced, and that someone had whispered in her ear, Your son is thus far safe. This was a great relief to me, for I had feared for her safety. I knew that rumors must have reached her of my being hunted down, and of the uncertainty of my escape from the mob, and I knew that her agony must be terrible. I remained hid in the barn until nightfall, when I ventured forth and was guided by two friends to a good hiding-place, their main object being to keep me out of the clutches of the mob, as I informed them that I did not wish to evade the law, but wanted to reach Modesto when I could do so with safety. I did not look upon Meany as an officer, as he, to my knowledge, mixed with the mob, and deputized some of the ringleaders as his posse. I have his own word for this, because he told me, while returning with me to Modesto from my examination at Merced, that there was not a half a dozen men out but what he had deputized. I lay hid in my new retreat, which was in a barn, some four or five miles from Cressy Station. This barn was filled with hay, and I burrowed a hole, got into it, covered it up, and lay hid all day, venturing forth at night only, to stretch my aching limbs and to get water. While hid in this barn I suffered from cold, hunger, and thirst. While I hid there the mob was hunting for me everywhere, and whenever the cowardly crew came to a thicket of willows that they feared to inspect closely, or in which they thought I might be hid, they fired into the same. The firing was distinctly seen and heard by myself at one particular point on the Merced River. In the corral of the barn in which I lay hid there were a dozen or so of fine horses, out of which I could have taken my pick, had I desired to effect my escape, but that was far from my intention. 
I was determined not to flee if I could possibly reach Modesto in safety. Had I have had no opportunity to have done so, as a last resort I would have armed myself, mounted a good horse, and leading another, struck a bee-line for Mexico. Knowing the country so well, and for other reasons which I will not mention here, I could have reached that country without fear of arrest, and after stopping there six months or a year, I would have returned and stood my trial. Luckily, I had an opportunity to reach Modesto, but not without incurring a great risk from the mob, whom I had to dodge on every hand in order to reach Cressy Station, where, under the protection of five friends, I took passage to Modesto on Saturday morning. Arriving there at seven o'clock, I immediately went to the Ross house, ate my breakfast, and then sent a messenger in quest of the sheriff. He being out of town, his deputy, Chas Ale, came to the parlor. I was introduced to him, and gave myself into his custody. That night the sheriff called out a large number of men to prevent a set of scoundrels from Merced from mobbing me. I have written this simple, uncolored, true statement of facts in justice to Nick Breen, as Mr. Fleming, the deputy sheriff, told my mother that Mr. Meany had ordered Mr. Breen to take me to Modesto, and that he, Breen, had disobeyed orders. My mother went immediately to Mr. Breen and asked him if what Mr. Fleming said was true. No, said Mr. B., I wanted to take Harry to Modesto, but Meany's strict orders were the halfway house. The following beautiful poem was written after the authoress had spent several hours in jail with the prisoner in company with his mother, in which time they all dined together, the meal being furnished from a restaurant by his mother. Young Harry acted as host, calm and dignified, though pale from confinement and want of sun and air. The Fatal Slander, or Harry's Defense, by Mrs. L. E. Drake The sun was shining bright without, where happy faces smiled, but within the lonesome prison walls sat one so pale and mild. No sigh escaped his peaceful lips, no tear bedimmed his eye, though weary from the waiting to know if he must die. Kind stranger, do you wish to know what is the prisoner's crime? Twas because some cruel monster his mother did malign, which roused the sleeping passions of anger, hate, and strife, when, in a time unguarded, he took the offender's life. Oh, now, said he, I'm ready to answer for this crime. You see, I've killed the villain my mother did malign. That mother who has cherished me through all my childhood days, and rocked me on her bosom when weary of my plays. That mother, who in her early years her orphan boy has led o'er weary wastes and craggy peaks to earn our daily bread. Far over snow-capped mountains and through the sunny glens, to sell her own productions, her books, to stranger men. That mother, who at midnight hours, when daily toils were o'er, and millions on their downy beds inside their palace door, were resting from all sorrow, while she, who forced to roam, sat writing by the campfire, an authoress with no home. How many, many were the days when I was but a child! I stood beside that mother, and watched her pen the while. Until her hand grew weary, her mind would fain have rest. But the publisher was waiting, the book her child might bless. Thus months and years rolled onward. When childhood's days were done, I stood beside that mother, a faithful, happy son. For years we toiled together, with books and pen and type, in hopes the future had for us a home, oh, happy sight! But, ah, stern fate, how cruel, when men who mock our laws, 
and strive with unrelenting hand to find some legal cause to murder every cherished hope with slander's cruel knife, and drop by drop to steal away poor woman's helpless life. To a slander vile young Harry saw upon the printed page, his mother dear, the victim, which caused the fires to rage. His cheeks grew pale with anguish, his heart could know no fear, his only thought of days gone by, and mother's name so dear. He only thought of years agone, when mother's face was young. Her arms were strong and willing, then, to guard her little son. But times have changed that youthful face, and age is creeping on, while he, in early manhood now, must be the stronger one. Shall he defend his mother's name? No duty is too great. Though prison walls or gallows high for him will anxious wait. And now, within the lonely jail, young Harry waits his doom. Though it be liberty or death, the time must shortly come. Oh, mothers dear, and fathers too, O oh, women, weak or strong, Remember Harry's cause is yours, For you he suffered long. T'was not for gold or laurel wreath, T'was not for praise or fame, T'was not for love of honours great, But love of woman's name. End of Hunted Down, or Five Days in the Fog, by Harry Grenice Read by Marianne Spiegel in Chicago, Illinois. Spuk unter den fünf Eichen von Ludwig Bechstein Dies ist eine Aufnahme zum fünfjährigen Jubiläum von LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-Aufnahmen sind lizenzfrei und in öffentlichem Besitz. Weitere Informationen und Hinweise zur Beteiligung an diesem Projekt gibt es bei LibriVox.org Spuk unter den fünf Eichen von Ludwig Bechstein Nahe bei Erzen liegt ein Dorf, heißt Selksen, und nahe diesem Dorf standen fünf alte Eichen. Jetzt stehen nur noch drei, man nennt es aber immer noch unter den fünf Eichen. Dort trollt zur Nachtzeit gräulicher Spuk umher. Schwarze Riesenhunde mit feurigen Telleraugen und rasselnden Ketten, dreibeinige Hasen, luftiges Galgengesindel vom nahen Totenberg, schwarze Raben, Fledermäuse so groß wie Nachteulen, rennen, kriechen und fliegen durcheinander. Man sieht wohl auch nackte Jungfern tanzen von gräulicher Gestalt. Einstens gingen zwei Burschen von großen Berkel, wo sie gearbeitet hatten, nach Selksen zurück, denen begegnete bei den fünf Eichen ein wunderliches Spukding. Es hatte weder Kopf noch Arme noch Füße, und hullerte auf sie zu und ließ ein Stöhnen hören. Der eine Bursche wollte beherzt darauf zugehen, der andere aber riss den Kameraden zurück, zu seinem Glück. Ein alter Chirurg aus Erzen hatte noch spät einen Kranken besucht, und als er an die fünf Eichen kam, da saß ein weißes Kaninchen am Weg, das fing der Chirurg, tat es in seinen Schersack und trug es fort. Aber je weiter es ging, desto schwerer wurde der Sack. Er konnte ihn zuletzt nicht mehr tragen, setzte ihn hin und öffnete ihn. Da stieg ein Ding daraus hervor wie ein Mondkalb, über alle Maßen abscheulich, das fauchte ihn an, und da lief er, was er laufen konnte, 
und ließ den Sack samt allem Gerät darin im Stiche. Ein anderes Mal kam ein alter Jude des Weges, auch schon spät am Abend. Da saß an den fünf Eichen eine weiße Gans. »Gott«, dachte der Jude, »was soll sitzen hier über Nacht die schöne Gans? Ich will sie doch nehmen mit mir und will sie machen fett.« Die Gans aber wollte sich nicht gleich fangen lassen. Sie zischte und schlug mit den Flügeln, der Jude aber wurde ihrer endlich doch Herr und steckte sie in die Kiepe, die er trug. Wie er aber weiterging, so sprach er, »Gott gerechter, was ist doch die ganz so schwer, wenn ich sie doch nur erst der Harm hätt.« Aber er brachte die ganz nicht heim, er mußte stehen bleiben. Da rief es aus der Kiepe, »Gleich trägst du mich wieder unter die fünf Eichen, Jud, vermaledeiter!« aber wie zitterte und bebte da das arme alte Jüdchen, half aber alles nichts, es mußte gehorchen und die schwere Last wieder zurücktragen. Zum Glück wurde sie nun wieder mit jedem Schritt leichter, wie sie erst schwerer geworden war. Und wie das Jüdchen dort bei den Eichen war, kroch ein uraltes, spindeldürres Weib, fast mit einem toten Schädel und roten Augen, und haut wie Pergament aus der Kiepe und sagte, »Danke auch schön, dass du mich getragen hast« und gab ihm einen Schlag ins Gesicht, daß er um und um taumelte. Hinter ihm drein aber rief aus den fünf Eichen eine spottende Stimme den Neckreim, »Wer mir die Gans gestohlen hat, der ist ein Dieb, wer mir sie aber wiederbringt, den hab ich lieb.« Der arme Jud hat fast den Tod davon gehabt, und hat weder bei Tage noch bei Nacht jemals wieder Verlangen getragen, eine Gans, die nicht sein war, zu fangen und heimzuschleppen, wollte auch niemals unter den fünf Eichen lieb gehabt sein. Ende von Spuk unter den fünf Eichen von Ludwig Bechstein Gelesen von Hokuspokus Fünf Treppen hoch von Ada Christen Dies ist eine Aufnahme zum fünfjährigen Jubiläum von LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-Aufnahmen sind lizenzfrei und in öffentlichem Besitz. Weitere Informationen und Hinweise zur Beteiligung an diesem Projekt gibt es bei LibriVox.org Fünf Treppen hoch von Ada Christen Fünf Treppen hoch Fünf Treppen hoch dem Himmel nah dem blauen die Tauben nur vermögen noch, in unser Heim zu schauen. Tief unten liegt die Welt, es dringt nur in verlorenen Tönen herauf, was so betäubend klingt, ihr Jubeln und ihr Stöhnen. Wenn es auch oben einsam ist, du sehnst dich nicht hinunter, und wie dein kleiner Vogel bist du immer froh und munter. Vom Kirchturm in die traute Ruhe des Stübchens manchmal klingen die Glockenstimmen, aber du kannst noch viel schöner singen. Fünf Treppen hoch, fünf Treppen hoch halt ich dich treu geborgen. Was gilt die Welt mir unten noch mit ihren grauen Sorgen? Ende von Fünf Treppen hoch von Ada Christen Gelesen von Hokuspokus
Die fünf Fragen von Johann Wilhelm Wolf. Diese Aufnahme ist zum fünfjährigen Jubiläum von LibriVox. Alle LibriVox-Aufnahmen sind lizenzfrei und in öffentlichem Besitz. Weitere Informationen und Hinweise zur Beteiligung an diesem Projekt gibt es bei LibriVox.org. Aufgenommen von Elli. Die fünf Fragen von Johann Wilhelm Wolf. Ein armer Hirte hatte einen einzigen Sohn und kein Kind außer ihm. Da war es kein Wunder, dass der Knabe verzogen wurde. Alles, was er wollte, geschah, und so wuchs er ganz ins Wilde hinein, tat nichts und lernte nichts. Als er zwölf Jahre alt war, wurde ihm das einsame Leben auf dem Felde zu langweilig, und er sprach, »Ich gehe betteln. Da verdiene ich auch mein Brot und komme zugleich in der Welt herum. Was wollten die Alten da machen? Sie mussten ihn eben gehen lassen. Er bettelte sich durch bis in eine große Stadt. Da setzte er sich vor die Tür eines reichen Kaufmanns nieder, da zog ein Stück Brot aus dem Sack und biss so lustig hinein, als ob die ganze Stadt sein wäre und er vom besten Braten der Welt säße. Zufällig kam der Kaufmann eben nach Hause, und der Knabe gefiel ihm so wohl, dass er ihn zu sich nahm und ihn in die Schule schickte. Das Lernen schlug bei dem Hirtenknaben sehr wohl an, er war immer der Erste. Als er ausgelernt hatte, musste er auch noch die Kaufmannschaft erlernen, und auch darin machte er so große Fortschritte, dass sein Pflegevater ihn nicht genug rühmen konnte. Soweit war wohl alles gut, aber was dem Kaufmann nicht behagte, war, dass sein Pflegesohn, der unterdessen ein schöner Jüngling geworden war, sich allzu gut mit seiner Tochter stand, so daß er fürchtete, die beiden möchten sich heiraten wollen. Darum beschloss er ihn wegzuschicken, dass er die Welt sehe, denn er dachte, dann würden sie leicht einander vergessen. Darüber freute sich der Jüngling sehr, aber bevor er abreiste, ging er heimlich zu Emma, so hieß des Kaufmanns Tochter, und sprach, »Du bist mein, und ich bin dein, und wir lassen nicht voneinander.« da gelobte sie ihm treu zu bleiben, schenkte ihm einen schönen Ring, und sie nahmen unter vielen Tränen Abschied voneinander. Der Jüngling zog weg und kam an die See. Da nahm er ein Schiff und fuhr über in ein großes Königreich, welches auf einer Insel lag. Als er in die Hauptstadt kam, wurde er dort von dem König geführt, welcher ihn frug, wohin er gehe und was er suche. »Ich suche mein Glück, weiß aber noch nicht, wo ich es finden soll,« sprach der Jüngling. »Wenn du es findest, dann bringe mir auch das meine mit,« sprach der König. »Was ist es denn?« frug der Jüngling, und der König antwortete. »Mein Glück ist ein Baum, welcher goldene Früchte trug, aber jetzt keine mehr trägt. Wenn du mir schaffst, dass er wieder fruchtbar wird, schenke ich dir eine Last Gold aus meiner Schatzkammer.« Der Jüngling versprach, er wolle sich alle Mühe darum geben, und bestieg wieder sein Schiff, denn er merkte wohl, dass sein Glück nicht auf der Insel war. Nachdem er sechs Tage und sechs Nächte gefahren war, kam er in ein anderes Land, stieg aus und wanderte auf die Hauptstadt zu. Als er am Tore seinen Pass zeigte, führte ihn die Schildwache zum König, welcher in tiefer Trauer war. »Wohin gehst du?« frug der König. »Ich suche mein Glück«, sprach der Jüngling. »Dann bringe mir auch meines mit, wenn du deines findest«, sprach der König. »Was ist denn das?« »Mein Glück ist ein Brunnen, daraus sprangen ehedem goldene Perlen, und jetzt springen keine mehr daraus, und er ist ganz versiegt. Wenn du mir schaffen kannst, dass er wieder springt, dann schenke ich dir eine Last Goldes aus meiner Schatzkammer.« Der Jüngling versprach sein Möglichstes zu tun und zog weiter, denn er sah ein, dass ihm sein Glück hier nicht blühte. Zwei Monate fuhr er im Lande umher, da kam er an die See, dort setzte er sich zu Schiffe und fuhr noch zwei Monate. Dann legte das Schiff an, denn sie hielten vor einer großen Insel. Da stieg er ans Land und kam in die Hauptstadt, wo alles in tiefer Trauer war. Es war ein Gebot vom König ausgegangen, dass jeder Fremde gleich zu ihm geführt werde, und so geschah es auch dem Jüngling. Als er in das Schloss kam, frug der König ihn, »Wohin gehst du?« »Ich suche mein Glück.« dann bringe mir auch das meine mit, wenn du deines findest. Was ist es denn? frug der Jüngling, und der König antwortete, Ich hatte drei Töchter, und vor Jahren ist mir die jüngste gestohlen worden. 
wenn du sie mir wieder schaffst schenke ich dir mein halbes königreich der jüngling versprach alles zu tun was in seinen kräften stünde und zog seines weges weiter denn wo solche trauer war da konnte er sein glück nicht finden er hatte wiederum ein gut stück weges hinter sich als er eines tages ein altes schloß vor sich liegen sah ein ungeheurer riese hielt daran wache betrug eine der schwersten kanonen die es gibt auf der schulter als er den jüngling sah schrie er ei du erdenwurm wo willst du hin ich suche mein glück dann bringe mir meines auch mit hörst du wenn du mir sagen willst was das ist will ich es wohl tun sprach der jüngling ich stehe hier schon tausend jahre schildwache sagte der riese und ich weiß nicht wie ich abgelöst werden kann gut ich will sehen sprach der jüngling und zog weiter und immer weiter bis er an einen großen fluß kam da saß eine steinalte frau in einem nachen die frug ihn ob er nicht überfahren wolle jawohl das möchte ich gern wo willst du denn hin frug die frau weiter und er antwortete ich suche mein glück dann bringe mir doch auch meines mit was ist denn das ich fahre schon an tausend jahre die leute über und niemand kommt um mich abzulösen antwortete die frau der jüngling versprach sie bereitwillig sprang am anderen ufer ans land und marschierte rüstig weiter bis er an einen großen wald kam da irrte er den ganzen tag umher gegen abend traf er auf ein waldhaus da klopfte er an eine schöne junge frau öffnete ihm die türe aber sie erschrak offenbar als sie ihn erblickte könnte ich die nacht wohl hier bleiben frug der jüngling ach ihr seid zu eurem unglück hierher gekommen sprach sie und ihr dürft nicht bleiben denn ihr seid eures lebens nicht sicher hier wohnt ein menschenfresser der verschont keines und wenn er euch findet dann ist es um euch geschehen ich bin aber so müde daß ich nicht weiter kann sprach der jüngling wollt ihr mich nicht irgendwo verstecken das kann ich nicht antwortete sie denn er riecht euch und zudem ist er allwissend und sieht alles was auf der erde vorgeht aber der jüngling bat so lange bis sie endlich doch einwilligte die schöne frau brachte des abendbrot und sie setzten sich zusammen zu tische während sie aßen erzählte er von seiner reise und den fünfen denen er ihr glück mitbringen solle wodurch eigentlich sein glück gemacht wäre denn wenn er so viel geld von den königen bekäme dann wäre er geborgen auf lebenszeit die frau war von herzen sehr gut und sie versprach ihm den menschenfresser auszuforschen der werde schon alles wissen plötzlich rauschte und brauste es im walde als ob die bäume brechen wollten da kommt er schrie die frau und schnell kroch der jüngling unter das bett kaum lag er da als die türe aufflog und der menschenfresser hereintrat menschenfleisch riech ich menschenblut genieße ich wen hast du heim schrie er ei na sprach die frau wirst du dich denn nie an mich gewöhnen mich hast du heim und hier steht dein essen das laß dir schmecken und damit holler er wollte ihr antworten und machte Gamine und das bett zu greifen da drückte sie ihn auf seinen stuhl nieder und schob ihm einen löffel voll über den anderen in den mund als sie ihn recht voll gestopft hatte so daß er sich kaum mehr regen konnte packte sie ihn am kragen und rief nun steh auf und mache daß du in dein bett kommst ich kann dich nicht hineintragen nur nicht lange dagesessen rasch sonst schläfst du mir noch ein er raffte sich langsam auf und wankte nach dem bette zu plumps fiel er hinein sie schob seine beine nach und es dauerte keine zwei minuten da blies er schon wie ein blasbalg und bald schnarchte er daß man zwei dem walde hörte da rief die schöne frau dem jüngling zu nun merke wohl auf was er sagt wenn ich ihn frage sie legte sich zu dem menschenfresser und stieß ihn derb in die seite er fuhr auf und brummte unwirsch was fällt dir ein du Näherin? sie sprach mir träumte ein könig habe einen baum mit goldenen früchten gehabt jetzt trage er aber keine mehr was mag die ursache davon sein das weiß ich knurrte der menschenfresser eine von den kammerjungfern der prinzessin hat heimlich ein kind geboren sie hat es getötet und in der wurzel des baumes begraben solange das unschuldige blut um rache schreit kann der baum keine goldenen früchte tragen 
wird es aber hinweggenommen und sie bestraft dann trägt er noch reichlich holz vorher und nachdem er dies gesagt hatte legte er sich aufs andere ohr und schlief wieder ein über eine weile gab sie ihm abermals einen rippenstoß so daß er auffuhr und brummte was willst du denn schon wieder mir träumte sprach sie ein könig habe einen brunnen woraus goldene perlen sprengen aber der sei ihm versiegt woher mag das wohl kommen das weiß ich knurrte der menschenfresser es sitzt eine große kröte im brunnen vor der quelle wenn man die herausholt dann springt der brunnen noch reicher als vorher jetzt laß mich ruhig schlafen und er legte sich auf die seite und schnarchte ein stückchen weiter er hatte aber noch nicht manche note geschnarcht da gab ihm die frau einen schlag hinter das ohr so daß er in die höhe fuhr und schrie bist du toll geworden oder was fehlt dir ach ich träume die nacht so schwer sprach sie mir träumte ein könig habe drei töchter gehabt davon sei eine ihm gestohlen worden und kein mensch wisse wo sie geblieben sei das mußt du doch jedenfalls wissen das weiß ich auch antwortete er und grinste sie freundlich an das bist du ja selbst und ich habe dich ihm gestohlen und jetzt rate ich dir laß mich schlafen der schönen frau ging durch diese antwort ein licht auf ihr fiel ein wie sie in dem palast ihres vaters so schöne zimmer gesehen und so liebe gute schwestern gehabt hatte wie sie von ihrer mutter gehätschelt und getätschelt worden war und alles alles sah sie wieder vor sich da überkam sie ein großes heimweh und sie dachte in ihrem herzen ach wenn er mich doch mitnehme und meinen lieben eltern ihr glück brächte und mir das meine schenkte sie stand vorsichtig auf und rief leise ganz leise dem jüngling zu der unter dem bette steckte willst du mich denn hier bei dem menschenfresser lassen oder willst du mich mitnehmen ach nimm mich doch mit dir ohne dich gehe ich nicht sprach der jüngling und wenn es mein leben kostete da faßte sie frischen mut und schlug den menschenfresser noch einmal hinters ohr daß es patschte der fuhr sehr zornig empor und schrie sie an jetzt wird es mir zu bunt willst du mich in ruhe lassen oder nicht ach es ist zu so heiß und ich glaube ich habe ein fieber sprach sie denn so habe ich noch nie geträumt was hast du denn wieder geträumt schnaubte er und sie sprach ach mir träumte ein riese stünde tausend jahre schildwache und habe eine schwere kanone auf der schulter wisse aber nicht wie er abgelöst werden könne ei der narr brummte der menschenfresser und legte sich wieder hin warum gibt er die kanone nicht dem erstbesten der vorbeikommt dann ist er abgelöst jetzt laß mich aber mit deinen träumen in ruhe oder du sollst sehen daß ich keinen spaß verstehe und über eine weile schnarchte er wieder daß das häuschen zitterte es blieb aber noch eine frage übrig und so wagte es die frau denn auf gut glück und patschte ihn zum schluß noch einmal daß es schallte im selben augenblick aber richtete sich das ungeheuer auf bleckte seine zähne vor wut und griff nach ihr wäre sie nicht so flink aus dem bette gesprungen er hätte sie wahrscheinlich gefressen sie war aber mit einem satz an der tür und rief tu mir doch nichts was kann ich denn dafür daß mir so schwer träumt und daß ich fieber habe das ist das letzte mal wo ich es dir hingehen lasse sprach der menschenfresser kommst du mir aber noch einmal dann fresse ich dich mitsamt deinen träumen es soll ja auch gewiß nie wieder geschehen beruhige dich nur sagte die frau mir träumte eine alte frau fahre schon an tausend jahre die leute in einem nachen über die wasser und könne nicht abgelöst werden wie kommt das wohl ei die näherin laß ihr ruder dem erstbesten geben den sie überfährt und zuerst ins land springen dann ist sie abgelöst und nun nimm dich in acht und störe mich nicht weiter in meiner nachtruhe sonst schaffe ich mir ruhe und dir mit nun gib dich nur zufrieden alter narr sprach die frau und kraulte ihm den kopf da knurrte er noch ein wenig und dann schlief er wieder ein und schnarchte so brav weiter wie vorher da stand die frau leise auf und der jüngling kroch unter dem bett hervor sie öffneten vorsichtig die türe und flohen so schnell sie konnten und ehe der morgen anbrach standen sie schon an dem wasser die alte frau rief dem jüngling schon von weitem entgegen nun hast du mein glück ich habe es und wenn du uns rasch überfährst sag ich es dir am anderen ufer in einem nu waren sie jenseits des wassers 
Da sprangen die beiden ans Land, und der Jüngling sprach, »Wenn du abermals jemand überfährst, und du bist am Lande, dann gib ihm das Ruder und springe zuerst aus dem Nachen, dann bist du abgelöst.« »So zeige mir doch, wie ich das machen muß sprach die Frau, aber die beiden waren ihr zu klug und eilten ihres Weges weiter. Als der Riese den Jüngling sah, rief er ihm entgegen, »Nun, Erdwürmchen, hast du mein Glück?« »Ich habe es, aber warte, bis ich am Schlosse vorüber bin.« Jenseits des Schlosses sagte der Jüngling ihm sein Glück, und der Riese bedankte sich und war von Herzen froh. In dem Königreich, wohin sie nun kamen, nahmen sie sich einen schönen Wagen und putzten ihn mit grünen Reisern, und der Jüngling sagte jedem, der es hören wollte, »Ich bringe dem König seine verlorene Tochter zurück.« Da lief alles Volk mit dem Wagen, und es war ein Jubel ohne Ende. In der Hauptstadt aber ging der Jubel erst recht los. Der König und die Königin und die Schwestern der Prinzessin waren außer sich vor Freude, und drei Monate lang gab es Feste auf Feste, eines prächtiger als das andere. Da drängte es den Jüngling doch nach Hause, und sogleich ließ der König seine sechs Maultiere mit Gold beladen vorführen und sprach, »Nun wähle dir, was du willst. Hast du lieber sechs Lasten Gold, oder willst du lieber meine Tochter zur Frau?« »Wäre ich nicht versprochen,« antwortete der Jüngling, »dann wählte ich eine der drei schönen Prinzessinnen zu meiner Frau.« nun aber darf ich meinem Schatz die Treue nicht brechen, denn das wäre große Sünde, und wähle die sechs Lasten Gold. Wie du willst, sprach der König, und am anderen Tag nahm der Jüngling Abschied und fuhr zur See in das andere Königreich. Er ging geraden Weges auf die Hauptstadt und das Schloss des Königs zu und ließ sich bei ihm melden. Der König war sehr erfreut, ihn wiederzusehen und frug sogleich, »Hast du mein Glück?« »Ich habe es,« sprach der Jüngling und offenbarte ihm, dass die Kröte den Brunnen verstopfe. Da wurden die Brunnenmeister geholt und mussten den Brunnen hinabsteigen, und wie der Jüngling gesagt hatte, so war es. Sobald die Kröte von dem Quell weggenommen war, sprang er so reichlich, dass die Brunnenmeister sich kaum vor dem Wasser mit den goldenen Perlen zu retten wußten. Es fehlte wenig, so wären sie alle ertrunken. Der König freute sich aber so sehr darüber, dass er dem Jüngling statt einer zwei Lasten Goldes geben ließ und ihm auch noch ein Schiff ausrüsten ließ, womit er seine Fahrt zur See fortsetzen konnte. Es dauerte nicht lange, so landete der Jüngling in dem ersten Königreich, wo er sich sogleich zum König führen ließ. »Hast du mein Glück?« frug der König. »Ich habe es«, sprach er, und offenbarte ihm, warum der Baum keine goldenen Früchte mehr trage. Sogleich mussten die Gärtner herbei und am Baume nachgraben. Da kamen die weißen Knöchelchen zu Tage, und die Kammerjungfer wurde noch am selben Tage hingerichtet. Noch vor Abend trieb der Baum Blüten und so viele goldene Früchte, als wolle er all die Jahre nachholen, in welchen unfruchtbar dagestanden hatte. Der König aber schenkte dem Jüngling in seiner Dankbarkeit statt einer Last Goldes zwei, und dazu Wagen und Pferde und prächtig gekleidete Diener. Fröhlich und wohlgemut ging der Jüngling zur See und konnte es kaum erwarten, seine Emma wiederzusehen. Als das Schiff am Strande vor Anker gegangen war, setzte er sich in seinen Wagen und fuhr in die Stadt, wo der Kaufmann wohnte. Dort kehrte er dem Hause gegenüber in einen Gasthof ein. Wie wunderte er sich aber, als er in des Kaufmanns Haus alle Fenster erleuchtet sah und rauschende Musik schallen hörte. Er frug den Wirt, was das bedeute, und der Wirt antwortete, »Die Tochter des Hauses hält Verspruch, aber es geschieht gegen ihren Willen. Du lieber Gott, das arme Blut täte lieber weiß was, als mit ihrem Bräutigam tanzen, aber ihr Vater zwingt sie dazu.« »Dabei möchte ich auch sein,« sprach der Jüngling, zog prächtige Kleider an und ging in das Haus. Da er schon so viele Jahre weg gewesen war, hatte er sich so sehr verändert, dass ihn niemand wieder erkannte, selbst Emma nicht. Wer hätte aber auch denken sollen, dass dieser stolze Herr der Jüngling gewesen sei. Er ging sogleich auf Emma zu und sprach sie um einen Tanz an. Von Herzen gern, sagte sie, denn jetzt brauchte sie doch nicht mit dem verhaßten Bräutigam tanzen. Während sie nun so herumwalzten, hielt er die Hand so, dass der Ringe recht in die Augen blitzte. Sie sah den Jüngling mit großen Augen an und wurde totenblass. Er aber führte sie in ein anderes Zimmer und sprach, »Emma, 
kennst du mich nicht mehr?« Da fiel sie vor lauter Freude in Ohnmacht, und als sie wieder erwachte, da lag sie in seinen Armen. Ihr Vater und ihre Mutter kamen hinzu, und auch der Bräutigam und alle waren nicht wenig erstaunt, dass Emma so freundlich gegen den fremden, stolzen Herrn tat. Da gab sich der Jüngling zu erkennen und erzählte, woher er sein Geld habe, und dass er reicher sei als der König. Die Gäste horchten mit Erstaunen zu, nur nicht der Bräutigam. Der schlich sich leise hinweg, und niemand hatte mehr gesehen. Im Herzen des Kaufmanns aber war die Habgier erwacht. Als er am folgenden Tage das viele Gold sah, welches der Jüngling mitgebracht hatte, da ließ es ihm erst recht keine Ruhe, und er sprach zu seiner Frau, »Komm, lass uns auch unser Glück versuchen. Hat der Geldschnabel es so leicht gefunden, dann werden wir es auch finden, und noch viel besser wie er.« Da packten sie ihre Koffer und gingen zur See. Als sie in das erste Königreich kamen und nach dem König frugen, wurden sie gar nicht einmal vorgelassen. In dem zweiten Königreich ließ der König ihnen sagen, als sie sich meldeten, sie hätten beim Nichts verloren. In dem dritten wurden sie wohl vorgelassen. Als sie aber sagten, sie wollten dem König sein Glück mitbringen, frug der König, ob sie närrisch seien und sprach, »Ich habe kein Glück mehr nötig, seitdem ich meine Tochter wiedergefunden habe.« Die beiden Alten verloren trotzdem den Mut nicht und gingen weiter. Als der Riese sie sah, rief er dem Kaufmann zu, »Halt da, du Erdenwurm! Nimm mir mein Gewehr einmal ab, du kannst für mich Wache halten.« Und er legte ihm die Kanone auf die Schultern, aber sie war so schwer, dass der Mann zusammenbrach. Die Frau war beim Anblick des Riesen vor Schrecken geflohen, ohne sich nach ihrem Manne umzusehen, und kam an das Wasser. Da nahm das alte Weib sie hurtig in ihren Kahn auf. Als dieser am anderen Ufer hielt, sprach die Alte, »Haltet mir einen Augenblick das Ruder fest.« Die Frau tat es, und mit einem Satz war die Alte am Ufer, und die Frau verwünscht, die Leute überzufahren. Wenn keiner unterdessen dem Kaufmann die Wache und ihr das Ruder abgenommen hat, dann findest du sie wohl heute noch auf ihrem Posten. Ende von die fünf Fragen von Johann Wilhelm Wolf, gelesen von Elli, Juli 2010.